I don't care what anybody says. One of the greatest music videos is Start Me Up. I'm not that big on the song, but the video is the first 30 seconds of that video is one of the greatest things I've ever seen. It starts with Mick Jagger wing. He's wearing this white shirt, blouse, I don't know, and these um, purple jogging pants. And he's just doing this dance that's just so brilliant. We're going to look at this right now. It's one of the greatest 30 seconds I've ever seen in my life. Oh, wow. Oh, white pants and purple. Oh my God, I love this so much. Ah, oh God, I love this. What is he doing? What is he doing? This is, I love this. I love I love this so much. You <laughs> love that. I love this. This is one of the greatest 30 seconds in all of music video history. I don't care. This is drugs. <laughs> what is this? Charlie Watts is like, what is wrong with you people? I love it so much. It's so interesting. It's what it, I don't top five. Oh, greatest wow. intros to music videos of all time. Wow. I do not care what anybody says. Jeez. Look at that beauty. It's beautiful. What was he doing? I don't know. <laughs> exactly. You don't know. That's what makes it so special. Just uh, this is this is beautiful. Like what is he doing? This is oh my, this is this is glorious to me. <laughs> I love it so much. Oh, my God. Do we have to start an episode? Yes, let's start. Oh, my God. morning good day good afternoon good people good night wherever you are in the world this is another episode of music and we and i'm jamila i'm jesse yeah <laughs> <laughs> and we are started up <laughs> starting up and never stopping i guess because you know mick jagger told us so i'm telling you this is one of the most beautiful music videos I've ever seen just watching it without sound with sound I'm not that into the song but it is one of the most beautiful music videos I've ever seen it is one of, it's probably top three top wow it went from top five to top three wow yeah wow. one of one of those top five to top, yeah okay no definitely top three it was sure. my first time watching it and it's pretty interesting to say the least I need to watch it a little bit more to see oh, no. what joy we're watching this while we talk this is so beautiful <laughs> just loop it <laughs> this is my equivalent of bad singing and you know that bad singing oh, yeah, yeah, is right. one of my favorite things in the whole world what are they doing keith richards just <laughs> this is ridiculous this is one of my favorite music videos of all time i can't even think of what my favorite music yeah, videos be are besides this, this one right. look at how choreographed that was that's beautiful this is ridiculous this video makes no sense. I love it. <laughs> I can't even think of other music videos I love as much as this one. What is he, what doing? Is he doing? I just anyway. So <laughs> start me up. Yes, I'm. I'm very 
I love it. I love it so much. And uh, <laughs> we like to just, uh, I don't know, open things up before we get into the actual main subject of the show. <laughs> but I wanted to ask you a few questions. What? <sighs> My goodness. So I was thinking about the how the older I get, the less connected I get to particular experiences mm. like embarrassment or shame or something like that. Right. I still need to work through a lot of stuff in per pertaining to shame, but in terms of being embarrassed about stuff, I just don't really have any regrets or feelings around it. And I wanted to ask you what moments for you are you still tied to in terms of embarrassment? And are you working through any periods where you're just like, you know, things happen. I don't. That's a really good question. Cause you know, when I think of embarrassment for myself, I don't really have many moments where I'm like, Ooh, I wish I didn't do that. <laughs> like I'm the, I'm all, I've always been a type where it's like, well, it happened. I'm here. Okay. So I don't really struggle with embarrassment or shame so much as it is like, if I go through something and it's embarrassing that moment, I feel it. And it's just like, Ooh, that's icky. But then I breathe and I kind of laugh it off. Like I, I find myself laughing at a lot of the things I do. Cause I like, like the Rolling Stones. I'm sure they <laughs> definitely <laughs> laughed off this video. Yeah, Whew. for sure. So, I mean, thankfully I haven't had those moments of, um, like I remember when I would be teased and I would kind of join in and the teasing of myself. Like I would, I don't know if that was a form of me wow. trying to masquerade it, but I would be like, yeah, I mean, huh. <laughs> you can pick on that. Cause that's funny, but. I can look at something that you have on that's funny too. So I never really internalize it much. Wow. So I was thinking for myself, one of the moments that could be embarrassing to a lot of people, but it wasn't to me. So this was when I was in the rehab center and they had a color scheme. It's probably the best way, a color system, I guess, mm -hmm. where if you needed a ton of assistance, so you really couldn't do anything by yourself, that was red. So you needed all of the assistance. Okay. The yellow was, you know, we're still checking you out and you can't really do that much by yourself right now because we're watching you. Green is you could do anything by yourself at this rehab center. So I was at the period of yellow, but I had to pee really bad and... He had the ringer, but the ringer fell off the bed. And so I have one leg. Of course. I can't get off the bed. I'm still, my legs are still pretty messed up at that point. And so there was no way for me to call anyone with this belt because it was on the floor. So I was like, man, I'm just going to go do it. So I took the rails off and I got out into the wheelchair on the bed, off the bed by myself. Wow. And I had to pee really bad. So I was like, I can't, I can't go out to call it. It's like the middle of the night. It's probably like three in the morning or something. People are around, you know, I don't know. But I go, the second I go literally right next to the toilet, I pee on myself. <laughs> right. I'm literally right wow, next you really to the have toilet. To go. Wow. Yeah. Okay. It's like right as I was about to get on the toilet, it just, <laughs> yeah. So something like that. Mm -hmm. where I think a lot of people would be embarrassed by it's just I'm just not embarrassed by that it's just it was a thing that happened right. and so I peed all over the wheelchair 
Oh, wow. It was bad. So I had to get another wheelchair, obviously. And then I think I ended up after that going out in the hallway and be like, hey, somebody, you know. (laughs) (laughs) They're like, well, why didn't you call us? I was like, the the caller fell off the bed. I I had to pee. And then, you know, right after that, I got the green. (laughs) But, (laughs) But yeah, it was just I mean, I'm sure everybody has that moment in their life. Well, I don't know about everybody, but enough people say they had that moment where they had to pee and they went right as they were going to open the door. They were just exactly. like, well, I'm, I'm going to my house anyway. You know, <laughs> so, <laughs> right. that was me, except it was in the rehab center and like I'm literally next to the toilet. <laughs> but you got up and everything It's just like, yeah, it, it, you were holding it in. It came yeah. out. Yeah. Like, I, I, I woke up. I had to pee really bad. <laughs> <laughs> I could, the thing fell off the bed. So stuff like that, I just don't really have an attachment to at this point in my life. Yeah. Cause it's just like things happen. Exactly. That's always been my thing. It's like things happen. I mean, you can't really. It's happened already. I mean. Right. You can't go back and wish that it didn't when it happened already. And, and it serves up to be a funny story. Like. Right. So it's, you know, what What are you going to do? It's just your body's speaking, trying to t- talk to you, and then a function happens. Right. But yeah, I mean, there's times I've definitely I pooped my pants, you know? It's just yeah. like, like everybody or many people have had those moments. So yeah, I've just been thinking a lot about that, about the concept of regrets and how tied they are to shame and how people's natural body functions are tied to shame Mm. and just the cycles of the body and you know puberty and all these things that many of us experience are just so tied to shame and i was thinking about this when i was asking you about uh, the different parts of the body and what those things mean there was a little campaign that was going around in light of the Roe v. Wade vote and the different states um, strengthening the anti-Roe laws once the federal one or the Supreme Court vote kicked in. And so there was uh, this person who did videos on TikTok asking dudes about anatomy (laughs) and what those things mean. And so they were asked questions about you know, what a period is or different parts of female anatomy and, and things like that. And yeah, it's very clear that people are not aware of that stuff. Clearly. <laughs> and I don't even think, you know, people have penises are, are very aware of their physiology either. It's fascinating to me because there's plenty of books out there. There's our bodies, ourselves. There's you have a ton of medical books, mm-hmm. but the educational system in the U.S., I mean, even with biology classes or whatever, I don't think really gets into the long and the short of that. And a lot of these classes are electives. Yeah. But I really think if we're going to talk about building relationships with people, if we're always encouraging people, or I'm saying we as in the, you know, hypothetical we, not us sitting here but 
if we're going to be like, well, the goal should be that you get married and have 2.5 kids or whatever, we should at the very least understand biology about around how those things work. Yes. But that's clear that's not happening because people are saying the vagina is this whole thing. It's literally one part of the body. Or they were asked like, how many ovaries there are. People are like, one? It's like, some people do have one, but that's generally not the case. Or again, what a period is. Or you know, people's use of tampons or it's just biology is just so confounding to people. And well, I, one thing I could say is this conversation inspired me to, to download and I'm going to have it printed out the diagrams. Cause I used to have that in my oh, room, for the real? diagrams of, yeah, of the anatomy, because it's good to know. I mean, yes. just like, it's good to just, cause I think just having this conversation with you, it made me realize how it is still that thing where no one really talks about it because mm-hmm their limited knowledge of it and it's like it's not normalized where folks know and understand these things right people talk about sex all the time you hear about sex in music you see people having sex in movies Mm -hmm. but yet people don't know anything around the biology of how sex is had it's just fascinating to me that you don't know like everyone's just like penis vagina like that's the that's typical way that people just think people that there's lots of ways, but that's what it is. But what's the phys- physiology of those things? And people really aren't aware of that. So there's all those songs in the eighties talking about, yeah, girl, I'm going to pleasure you, whatever. But people talk about that, but what exactly does that mean? I'm not saying you have to get graphic around the, the particular body parts of where you're in a pleasure, but people don't even know the names. All right. So it's, I think it's important, A, to talk about consent in these conversations, but when you are talking about sex with your kids, to really name the body parts. Absolutely. And of course, do it in a way that's age appropriate, which honestly, the age appropriate terms is just the medical terms. Really. Yeah, right. <laughs> you're going to talk about it. But it's fascinating to me because it just shows in so many ways, and we'll get into this with the other parts of the conversation, but it just shows how sex for so many people is transactional. Mm. Because I think once you start understanding your own body and you begin to understand the person you're with's body and the components of that, then I think you're probably able to have more fun because you understand how to pleasure those right. particular parts. You know, I don't know. Yeah. But it's just funny. People are like, oh, yeah, vagina is like this thing. It's this big cavernous thing. It's just like, <laughs> well, what does that mean? And so you're expecting people to birth all of these children and you don't know the particular body parts. It's It's so fascinating to me. So... Um, before we get into that, I did see a couple of things that uh, in the music world, so Barrett Strong, I'm sure some of you may know who that is. So Barrett Strong, 81 years old, he recently oh, wow. passed, I guess within the day or two. And it's just another cycle. He actually uh, was, co- or he sang on the first uh, Motown hit Money That's What I Want I hate that song so much I guess not hate because I dislike. hate very few things I strongly dislike that song 
I feel that's the Barry Gordy theme song. Yeah, and that's definitely ran Motown. <laughs> right. And yeah. I just I'm not into that song at all. Just the best things in life are free, but you can keep them for the birds and bees. I want money. Is this that's a pretty huge Barry Gordy mission statement. <laughs> yeah, I'm not into that song. But yeah, so um Barrett Strong, he had a whole writing partnership career with Norman Whitfield. So there were songs like Ball of Confusion, War. So they were in the era of Motown that got a little bit more political, which is like the era that okay. of Motown that I like. Right. Like they had during, you know, the late fifties to early to mid sixties, there were some good songs, but I like when they started getting into talking about the social issues, which we still experience in this day and age. And of course, money, that's what I want. Barry Gordy, he was like, well, you know, that's kind of going to make me money. So yeah, I'll accept that kind of songwriting. But what's going on with that came out yeah. in like, well, like 70, 71, greatest album of all time. We'll talk about that in a moment. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but he initially resisted uh, Marvin Gaye doing that song. Cause he was like, well... You know, I think talking about social issues of the time, that's not going to make me money. And then when he realized that's what people want, he's like, okay, yeah, great. Record the album. So, yeah, I'm not a fan of Barry Gordy. Uh, maybe we'll actually do an episode on that sometime. I, I mean, yeah, yeah. I'm not a fan of Barry Gordy. <laughs> I think I may have actually been open about that on this podcast before. But, yes, Barrett Strong is... Uh, part of the other cycle of the other side of life where we all end up at one point or another. And yeah, I, I also uh, did want to, oh my goodness. So speak, speaking of just the times, I don't know what's going to come out of musical responses if there are any to what happened to Tyree Nichols, which is, if anybody's been paying attention to uh, police terrorism in this country, this is nothing new. I, I think people are looking at, at this as a singular issue when this is a systemic issue. Right. And this is proof that the police system needs to die. There are plenty of examples. This is, this is a show focusing on music politics music but not strictly politics but there are clear examples of community defense activism and organizing actually working i have participated in those so i know for a fact that these things can be effective yes but the policing system which is a continuation of colonialism and an offshoot of imperialism is in a continuation of slave captures and just all of these things it needs to die so people are focusing uh, on this particular incident but the system itself needs to die and maybe you know there will be musical responses to this i don't know mm -hmm. but uh, no one should be surprised at this at any point i think one of the surprises is that you know all five of Police, I want to use other names, but <laughs> police <laughs> um, were of African descent. So that was a huge thing. But again, this is a system. This is 
expanding far beyond race. This is, I don't care who you are, if you're Puerto Rican, if you're African, if you're indigenous, if you endorse or participate in a policing terrorist system, um, you are siding with the anti-people's class. There's no question about that. So it's not like, well, there's some good cops there. Like if there were good cops, then they they would organize at actively putting a stop to it. But they are participating in the same system. And so where there, there was the 100 blacks in law enforcement, there was all these organizations. But I think if this were to be really, really effective, all those, quote, good cops would actually strike. Yeah. If, if it was really the case, like do a, a strike. Like we're until police terrorism, until the bad cops stop doing what they're doing, like we're striking. Yeah. Do an active strike. Do a wildcat strike or whatever. If the quote unquote good cops are really serious about fighting police terrorism until then, you are also participating in the anti-people's class. That, that's where I stand about that. that the system needs to die. So there's plenty of music about that. <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, Dead Kennedy, you know, whatever. Uh, it's, there's, there's plenty, uh, mostly in the punk genre. There's just one of the reasons I'm a punk kid because like uh, where my ideologies lie, lie in a lot of that music. But yeah, I, I just really wanted to say that. I, you can't get away from this. So I think just avoiding it is... This is this is a, another day in the life of uh, uh, just settler colonialist America. Absolutely, another day. Yeah, and how those policies affect the global society. You know, as uh, Marvin Gaye talked about, trigger happy policing. You know, what I mean, mm. that's why what's going on is the greatest album of all time. We're getting into that right now because he talked about that stuff. Yeah, he talked about how humans actively work on destroying the environment there's so many issues that we are still facing and experiencing today that album was the first as far as i know first popular album to do that so that will always be my number one favorite album of all time maybe for as long as i'm on this earth i don't know maybe maybe somewhat something will beat it i don't know but as for now it's been that for a while though right for yes for (laughs) at least 10 at least 10 years or more yeah yeah for sure so yeah that's how much i love this album it is hard for me to listen to that it does make me cry so i can't just put it on the turntable but it is definitely (laughs) it's been over 10 years i don't yeah probably like good at least 20 years so for sure what is i know that you said i i actually do have a list of my favorite top I 10 wish I, yeah i'm gonna have but to really... i know you don't so what are some of your favorites even if you don't have a top okay, 10 what are so, underground thelonious monk definitely is on the top 10 list for sure expectation is on the top list from prince <laughs> i'm hesitant to say this without really i mean it is wild card from sananda it's it's definitely on there i mean you know, let's see. Oh, see, I really do need to sit some time out and write the albums out because I don't want to speak too fast and be like, oh, I missed that one. But um, the album. These things are can change right. over change, time too. Yeah. So for for now, what are your for now? Yeah. Okay, so uh, we have 
I mean, there's so much music. And that's, I remember one of the things you told me earlier on is like, when we were talking about music and I didn't know what album you were referring to. And you was like, it's okay. There's a lot of music, you know, you'll get to it when you get, when you'll get to it. So that's absolutely true. Death Magnetic. It's definitely on. What? List. For real? Yeah. That's in your like top 10 for now? For now. What? <laughs> what? Yeah. Seriously? Little Dragon Season High. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wait, 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 wait. No, no, don't, 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 no, 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 no. What? It is. I was actually hanging out with my friend. We were talking about Metallica and I was like, he mentioned, he was like, that's one of my favorite Metallica. Wait, like, wait, 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 wait. You, you have not introduced me to this person. I know. That's who I went out with just the other day, Mike. Whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> he doesn't not know much about Metallica, but he's coming over to this house. Yeah, so I was like, you gotta come about? over and see the studio. But he knows enough to, to be like, he he told me, you know what he told me? He was like, I've never seen a fan base so, like, divided amongst the older fans and the newer fans. You you haven't seen the Michael Jackson fans? Yeah, I was exactly. Mm-hmm. I mean, we could talk about or, that too. Or Beyonce or Nicki Minaj. Well, well, age groups. I don't know about all that, but. But I think he was referring to like the trues, okay, and and how they just hate. He's like they just because he said he told one of his friends I was going to the Metallica show. He's like, oh, tell him to refund his ticket. They suck, and he was saying that due to the the Napster um, controversy and just kind of how Metallica has sucked since then. And I'm like, that's really a thing for a lot of folks. It yes. seems. I I I, w- I was a kid when Napster came out, and I just obviously I don't remember all of the hoopla around it, but. Metallica's great. So, I mean, for folks to just focus on their heyday period is just absurd to me. But yeah, Death Magnetic is definitely on the top. I, okay. I love that album. Before you get... First of all, Metallica, their live shows are way more refined. Yes. Like, you're trying to tell me that James Hetfield screeching in 1983 is better than what he's doing now? It's insane. Because of Napster? Like, be objective. I, I don't expect everybody to like them, but be objective. Like, you're saying they suck, but you haven't even heard them. That's so the thing. It's like this, you can't even say that unless you've heard the records. Anyway, so I want to know the albums that you named earlier up to Death Man What What is your thing about them? Why is this on your top list for now? So with Underground, I know... It's just something about the playing and the imagery it invokes when I listen to Underground from Thelonious Monk. I just, I, I find it consistently, it has all of the emotions. Sometimes it makes me cry. It makes me very happy. It's just an over-encompassing palette of emotions. And with expectation, it's all the things I love about Prince. And, and like all of these albums I picked so far, they just, they ring strong with every listen and I'm, I'm I'm hearing new things and I'm I'm growing with the listen and I, I feel differently at the same time. So it's like, it's familiar, but it's also like, oh, wow, what am I going to hear this time? So I think albums that occupy that space have to always manage to be, they're interesting. They're not just like the usual albums and they just possess that quality that makes me want to listen to it again. And anytime I listen to it, I'm never like, oh, I've heard that again. It's like, I'm hearing it for the first time. It gives me that joy of listening to it for the first time. And that's why even when I think of like the Rainbow Children, when I, 
anytime I, I remember when I first heard that record and listening to it, like it was just a, this journey I was on. And I, I like that feeling of when you hear a record for the first time and it's like, where is this album? And then you're just surprised by it. And it's like, oh yeah, this is, this is it. You know, this is, this is what's going to stay with me. And all of the producers involved and everyone who's involved in like, especially conceptual albums, I, I just relate to what the artist is aiming to accomplish with it and how it stands, at least in my mind, the test of time. Death Magnetic though. Well, with Death Magnetic, so listening to all of Metallica's records when I went on that spree to just hear their records, I feel like that one is something about the sound of that record and the lyrical imagery you like a song like all nightmare long i always go back to that because when i first heard that song i was just like whoa like it hits you so fast and what james is talking about and just the musicianship of the record it just sounds clean i love the magnet the death magnetic like it's such a interesting imagery just the cover art is great and it just rings for me, like, and it's clear. Because when I listen to their older records, it's something about it that sounds a little bit more grainy or just not as clear. I Death Magnetic just sounds very, and I don't mean like polished to where it's not, like it's just too clean, but it just sounds very glistening when I listen to it. Oh, it, fascinating. Yeah. And it, huh? but yet it's, but yet it's, it's, it feels good. And I, I, I like, I get chills. Ooh, let, let me tell you something. Okay. From, uh, <laughs> so it's interesting you say this because Death Magnetic is another album that is very divisive in the Metallica community because it is one of the albums to, of that era to suffer from the loudness war. So you know mm. what loudness war is, where, where the compression is so high, there's no dynamics. Mm. So it's interesting you're saying that you say glistening and clear <laughs> and all that, but the fact is, it, particularly when you listen to Eclipse, oh, okay. so I listen to the vinyl version. So I have both the OG Warner Brothers vinyl and then I have the Warner Brothers like 45 RPM. So the way that a vinyl is mastered is very different from the CD. So when you hear the CD version, it's just so loud and it clips. Mm. So that is uh, part of the loudness where everything is so compressed. It's just so when you look at a sound wave and say we're recording this episode and there's variations in the waves. Right. So if it's so loud and even when you try to edit to make it lower, it's just one bar. Mm -hmm. So that is. I'll, I'll show you after what the... I'm familiar with your Yeah, so yeah, that. that's what it looks like if if you record it. So it's interesting you're saying clear because <laughs> most people would hear you say that and they would argue with you. I can't see Because that, it's right. not clear. It's and it's a even, victim of the loudness wars. Right. I love Death Magnetic. We're going to talk about this. I love Death Magnetic. But yeah, it it's a recipient of the loudness wars. And uh, a lot of people also do not uh, like the dryness of James Hetfield's vocals. I actually I like a drier sound. I am not a fan of mass reverb. So there's a difference between 
say listening to Metallica's later stuff and Ride the Lightning and Puppets, Ride the Lightning and Puppets have mass reverb. So there, there's a difference in how things are produced and mastered and uh, mixed, etc. Right. And so it's really funny you're saying this about Death Magnetic because I think most people would actually argue with you. You're like, what are you talking about? It's not clear at all. It's the loudness wars. We just sing clear. But I think just from talking from a technical perspective versus a feel perspective, because I think you're focusing I'm, more yeah, on the feel. I, exactly. Where most people are looking at sort of the production. It was produced by Rick Rubin, if you want to call it produced, because he was pretty hands-off in the production. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so <laughs> I don't know. But, uh, so a lot of people... We're not really into that in terms of the sound, just as people were not into St. Anger with the <laughs> production. So yeah. so that is fascinating that you say that. So I just wanted to... Right, I can... Yeah, see, I'm not... Definitely not a technical guy when it comes to the music. Uh, I'm, I'm mainly speaking of the feeling. When I speak of the cleanness and the glistening, it's more so like, yeah, it just feels like a fresh glass of water. Wow. <laughs> feels. I mean, maybe if I was to drink it, it would be some sanding or whatever, but... Um, yeah, it just, I enjoy listening to it. I enjoy how clean it sounds and all of the topics that he's talking about and the, the, the guitar solos and everything. It just, it comes together really well. Yeah, it's one of my favorites. I mean, St. Anger, I feel the same way about St. Anger. Wait, that's until, in your top 10? Because you told me no, the other no, day it wasn't. Yeah, it's not. No, it's not. Oh, it's not. I was like, wait, what's yeah, that no, change no, for you? No, no, no. But um, it's definitely up there. I mean, I love St. Anger. It's in my top 10 Metallica. No, no, no. As but like a, as all a time, whole. no, no, no. But Death Magnetic is in your top 10 of all time? It is? Yeah. Wow. That's the only that Metallica is, record in my that top 10 That is fascinating to me, really. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> I, wow. Okay. Um, so before we get into the Metallica one, I'll talk about my... Was that it for you? That's all I can think of, Okay. Though. Yeah. So top 10 for me, I'm going to 10 to 1. So number 10 for me is St. Anger. Top top 10 albums <laughs> of all time. Yes. I don't care what anybody says. I'm not silly. I wouldn't say St. Anger is the greatest album of all time. That doesn't make any sense. Right. But it, to me, it is. it makes number 10 in... <laughs> top 10 albums of all time because I think I know a lot of people are like well this album has been there for me in the bad times I understand that and I actually <laughs> empathize with that but that's not why I love the album that the album actually makes me incredibly happy, happy even though it's called St. Anchor <laughs> I know I don't I don't really understand happy. I don't yeah. I really don't understand why but <laughs> It is an album that puts out on display the vulnerability of a group of people who were notorious for not displaying vulnerability. Right. It is a band falling apart. It is a story of people going through a process of therapy. I think that is an amazing story. And yeah, there's a lot of albums that allude to that kind of stuff. But it's just a story behind saying anger. I love, to me, it's ultimately a punk rock record. It's just like, I'm okay with the production. I'm okay with the drums. I'm okay with all of that. <laughs> I do agree with Kirk that 
your guitar solos are a thing that should have been on the album. But to me, that doesn't get get in the way of the album. It really doesn't. And when I talked about it, when we talked about our top 10 favorite Metallica albums last time, I was looking more at that kind of stuff. Even though I said, yeah, I'm, I'm rating this because of albums that I resonate with. But I was looking at St. Anger more like, well, no guitar solo. No, no, no. But no, I'm just g- going to say it. And I think the more that I looked at it, it's like, no, this really is one of my favorite albums of all time. So much that I made a six hour movie about it. But anyway, so right. St. Anger to me is one of the greatest works of art of all time. I do look at St. Anger as a work of art. Mm-hmm. It's just so many components of people having a very human experience. It is a very vulnerable album. It is, you know, people talk about cut and paste, but I, I love the thing about it. It's just like, okay, like we have these group of riffs. We have, the, I, I don't know. It's, it's a wonderful, beautiful, brilliant work of art to me. It is also, to me, some of Lars's best playing of his life on any album. It is his most adventurous playing. It is his most complex playing. I know people talk about Justice. The thing about it is Justice was also a cut and paste album. That's the only difference is that they did it on tape versus Pro Tools. Hmm. So, <laughs> but because you don't, there was no Pro Tools. People are like, oh, you know. Right. But and even at the time, people loved Justice, even though you could near the bass. So I don't understand. I, I don't know. Saint Anger to me is one of the greatest albums of all time in the world of any album, and I don't care what anybody says. I will defend <laughs> Saint Anger. I don't Saint Anger care. must be respected. It must be respected. And it turns 20 this year. I'm going to the Download Festival. Download is 20 years old. Mm-hmm. Started the same year as Saint Anger. You know, you know when Saint Anger was originally supposed to be released? June 10th, 2003. But because they didn't want it to get leaked or whatever, because, you know, the whole Napster thing happened and then other albums were threatened to be uh, leaked or whatever. So they released it five days earlier. But the download festival is not going to be on June 5th. Metallica is performing on June 8th and June 10th. So on June 10th, I really, something something in me says they're going to acknowledge St. Anger in some way. Here's to that. Please. I'm going to, I'm going to scream. Please. If they're like a St. Anger medley, I'm putting it out there. Right. St. Anger medley, please, for June 10th. That is the 20th anniversary, the 20th birthday. I don't even do birthdays like that, but I'm doing a St. Anger birthday. It is the 20th birthday of St. Anger on on June 5th. At least acknowledge it on June 10th or 8th or whatever. Please, Metallica, I'm putting it in the universe. Do it on June 10th if you have to, since that was the original release day. But please do some kind of St. Anger medley. Please, please, I please. beg of you. I love this album so much. I, uh, okay. I didn't even get to number nine yet. <laughs> Gang of Four, Entertainment. So Hugo Burnham was one of my greatest, like Lars at this point is, but Hugo Burnham was one of my greatest drum influences when I started out playing drums. And uh, it is an album, again, being a punk kid who... It's highly anti-capitalist. This, I think Gang of Four were Marxist, so they used a lot of Marxist ideology to fuel the music. 
It's like post-punk, uh, funk and reggae influenced. And then even the cover of that album talks about how colonists came in and, you know, tricked indigenous folks. I mean, they were straight up where their mission statement was <laughs> on the cover of that album. I love entertainment. Number eight, Angela Bofill, Angel of the Night. So this was her second album, beautiful jazz album. It's sort of, I guess, for all intents and purposes, could be jazz pop, I don't know. I think she's part Cuban and part Puerto Rican, I think. So there's definitely influences of that on the album. And we've got Spanish language stuff on the album. Um, I Try was the hit of the album. I think it was a, the first single, great song. Mm-hmm. It was, I think, the first Angela Bofield song I actually heard because it used to come on the radio. Yeah, if you haven't heard that, go listen to it. I love that woman so much. And she's one of the people, like, when she leaves this earth, uh, it's going to be hard for me. I love her. She had a few strokes, so she doesn't perform at this stage of her life. But I love her so, so much. Number seven, Andy Bay, Experience and Judgment. He did uh, was part of an ensemble with Horace Silver, who is one of my favorite pianists of all time. So he's one of the people who did vocals on his albums. And he's, a, he's one of the vocalists who you can't really duplicate his voice. And he has a very unusual voice. It's just like, like that. <laughs> and I love it. It, it. Definitely one of the folks, when I first heard his voice, I fell in love with it. it it's definitely... It's not for everybody's taste, but I love it. He's like, we must get close. It's just like, oh, I love it so much. And he actually, uh, it was part of that period in jazz that was very spiritual. And one one person who was not on here, because this is really hard for me to pick an album, is Pharaoh Sanders. So if anybody knows like how I feel about, it's it's hard for me to just narrow down to one album with him. So he's not on this list, but I, mm, Pharaoh Sanders. Mm. <laughs> but, um, Andy Bay, he plays piano. He's part of uh, Andy Bay and the Bay Sisters. His sisters also sang with him on Horace Silver albums. Yeah, Experience and Judgment, just talking about a lot of, like meditation and, and the spiritual aspect of life. It's so beautiful. And my favorite Andy Bay song, which is on this album, is Tune Up. So again, talking about like really being one with yourself and really focusing on that and getting to a particular type of peace. Mm. I love that album. Uh, number six, Mahmoud Ahmed. So uh, Mahmoud Ahmed was part of a huge contingent of performers in Ethiopia. And it's sort of like funk, funk jazz uh, a lot of his albums were released under the Ethiopique series. When I had two legs, I used to go to the library all the time and get records and books. And that's when I first heard Mahmoud Ahmed. And that was literally, the, I fell in love with his voice. So I can't even do it. It's like, uh, I can't see, I can't do it. But I literally, the, fir- the first note, I just fell in love. <laughs> I, I fell in love with his voice. It's like Andy Bay, but even more so with Mahmoud Ahmed. He has an album called uh, Ere Mela Mela or Ere Mela Mela. The songs are pretty hypnotic. And so they're just kind of repetitive and he's mm-hmm. just chanting over them kind of. 
uh, there's songs about love and yeah it's uh, such beautiful album so there are collect collections out there where you can hear Mahmoud songs but Mela Mela is one of my favorite albums of all time number five Astrid Gilberto or the Astrid Gilberto album some of you might be familiar with Astrid Gilberto she she was not uh, particularly part of the Tropicalia movement, but did uh, a lot of stuff. Which uh, ended up doing stuff with Stanley Turrentine, just a lot of jazz, but based in Brazil. So yeah, these songs are about love, and I actually can understand half of what she says because I do know some Portuguese and I'm continuing to learn it, but Brazilian Portuguese in particular. So. It's just she has a beautiful voice and she actually uh in the later years is doing a lot of animal rights stuff which is very fascinating to me <laughs> um so wow and the thing about astro gilberto makes me think of my beautiful cat friend holly who actually loved astro gilberto for wow. some reason i have no idea why <laughs> but yeah um, number four. Can you guess the number four is? Mm, no, I don't know. <laughs> Talking book. Stevie oh, Wonder. Stevie Wonder. Okay. Yeah. Talking book. Okay. Yeah. So this is uh, what his second album as an adult. Well, uh, where I'm coming from. See, I, I, I guess he was. Was he technically in Doug? I think he's probably like 18 or 19. So I, mm, I think maybe 1920. I don't know. But uh, Music of My Mind is considered the first classic adult Stevie Wonder album. Talking Book would be the second. I think that's when he really begins to fine tune his craft. Mm -hmm. Because Music of My Mind, in a funny way, even though it's brilliant, it does kind of seem disjointed in, in a really funny way. It's just kind of like, okay. Because he's trying to find his way. Right. Just I, I feel like the first two quote-unquote adult where I'm coming from is really, he's really just trying to find his way. And Music of My Mind, set of beautiful songs, but like Happier Than the Morning Sun, Girl Blue, beautiful songs. But I think it really starts to get fine-tuned from Talking Book on. So you have powerful song like You Are the Sunshine of My Life. Maybe Your Baby, that's just like straight yeah. funk. Mm. You've Got a Bad Girl, that's musically probably my favorite song on that album. Um, and of course, the hit Superstition. So yeah, Blame It on the Sun. I mean, it's just classic songs. But really, I think that is where he begins to fine tune his craft. And then of course, the rest is history. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but then there's a period of Stevie Wonder where he's just like doing old monologues. <laughs> and I'm I like, love that period. Uh, no, I do. No, I like those albums, but I don't like the monologues. <sighs> I mean, I know I monologue a lot, but I'm the one to do that in music. Stevie monologue. If, Steve, if Stevie Wonder did a podcast, I would listen to it, to, to be honest. Yeah. But in, in a song, I don't, nah, yeah, I don't, I know a family. No, 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 I know, I'm not trying to, no. That's not my thing. I know it's your thing. I know, but I just, yeah. Number uh, three, it's actually a tie. Earth, Wind, and Fire? Yeah, I do. Yeah. <laughs> so Earth, Wind, and Fire. This is a tie. Spirit and All in All. I couldn't pick, man. Right. You, you gotta pick one. You no, can't tie absolutely not. No, 
I'm not. I would nope. probably say spirit. No, nope. but I mean, I'm not. Pick, all, I'm not right. picking one. <laughs> You're like no. Or when a fire kid. No, I'm not choosing band one. Of all time. The greatest band of all. I don't. I will fight you on that. <laughs> I, no, or when a fire is the greatest band. Of, I know everybody has. Some people say the Beatles. Some people say I don't know. Uh, Megadeth. I don't know. But Earthman Fire's greatest band of all time. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I. I don't, how do you, I don't even know. This has no words. I mean, go and just go and listen to those right, albums. To like I don't even know how to just. Maurice White is brilliant. I don't even. Ain't no question. I could say so many superlatives. I do, I don't. Spirit all along, number three. I just, okay, number two. Like you already know the first two. You. Uh, I know the first, but number two. Hmm. I know it's not a Michael Jackson record. Hell no, no. <laughs> oh, look at you. Hell no. <laughs> uh. Love Supreme, man. Oh, of course. Yeah, See? John, John Coltrane. You. Of course. Yeah. Love Supreme, yes. Just, yeah, Love Supreme. When I first heard that record, it did make me cry. Yes. And I heard it with someone, and it was, yeah, we were both. The, the album that changed my life. Yeah. I was 19 years old. Not this album. Oh. <laughs> the album that changed my life was John Coltrane, Giant Steps. Oh, okay. So I heard that. Man, I don't, oh, see, it's too many albums. Oh my goodness. So another album that should be on here is Maiden Voyage, Herbie Hancock. I just, just too many. <laughs> That's another one definitely in my top albums. Should do a top 15 because, uh, but Maiden Voyage is up there. Herbie Hancock. So uh, two records have changed my life. Maiden Voyage, Herbie Hancock, and Giant Steps, John Coltrane. Those two records helped me to love music. I was listening to a whole gang of music, going to a ton of shows. But when I heard those, yeah, my life has changed. You know how people go, people like, Jay Dilla changed my life for that. No, right. John Coltrane or Herbie Hancock changed my life. So thank you. Thank you to you too. Absolutely. Because, yeah, so... Again, superlative. Like, how do you describe a love supreme? Mm. You just have to go listen, listen to, to it. it. And I heard it in the. I heard it on the full moon. I remember oh, see, oh. The full moon. I was, oh. Crying. I was like, wow. I mean, chill. Yeah. It was like I was in church. Yeah. I, exactly. It was a, it's a spiritual. It it's, is. It's, it's a experience. spiritual experience. Absolutely. That's the best way to describe it. Yeah. It's just, like wow. Just hearing, ooh, getting chills. A love supreme. You hear, ooh, it's just yeah. I love some cream. I love some cream. I love some cream. Yeah. So I just, yeah. Yeah. And there's the other album. Uh, people like, uh, when people say they don't like jazz, they mean John Coltrane. Like, mm -hmm. John Coltrane symbolizes all jazz to some people, or Miles Davis, like the yeah. later era of right. Miles Davis. Right. Jazz is so vast, but that's my favorite kind of jazz, like the free jazz, political mm -hmm. jazz. Jazz funk, that is my favorite kind of jazz. Yeah. Hard bop, like mm -hmm. from hard bop on, I love that stuff. I actually love just like regular bop. You know, I love the earlier stuff too, but like from from mid to late 60s on when it gets like deep, 
and get spiritual, political. Mm. I that's the jazz I love, man. <laughs> so I, mm-mm. <laughs> you got like James M. Two maybe, and I'm like, yeah, you know, like yeah. so yeah, Africa. You know, like I like I love that stuff when. Pharaoh Sanders like Africa just yelling Africa and the horn is just crying and connecting it's that's the stuff I love just the spiritual aspect of that and the connection to the spirit the connection to the self the connection to your ancestors that's what I love about music so why is Saint Anger on here because to me Saint Anger is a spiritual album so (laughs) it is like for, for for me me does that have to be for anybody else and i already talked about it what's going on is number one it is the greatest pop album of all time i don't care what anybody says i again i will fight you on that (laughs) not really but because you know music's personal it is the greatest pop album of all time that was the skeleton the gateway for other people in pop music to address similar issues There's been no album like that since in terms of how it resonates. I remember the first time I heard that record too. I was riding my bike in Texas. It was rainy, kind of rainy. And I was just like, wow. Like it was, I had it on the loop because I must've been riding for like two hours, but I just played it over and over. Just like, wow. Wow. Yeah. And the fact that he also speaks about his struggles with addiction, just Mm -hmm. the... To me, it is similar to St. Anger in that way. There's connections yeah, <laughs> to all of this sure. stuff. So it's just talking about how I'm not perfect either. And then you have an album like Here My Dear. It's just like, yeah. No. You know, here's <laughs> anything, any money I make is going to, you know. It's just, he was, he was, he, yeah. It's Marvin Gaye was an interesting cat. <laughs> so now we're going to get to. Uh, favorite Metallica or top 10 what favorite Metallica albums are Metallica. <laughs> right. so are we including Lulu in this because I, I didn't but oh I did okay then yeah. let me figure out where I could put Lulu uh, <laughs> okay I so I got I'm gonna start from the bottom to Lulu <laughs> <laughs> Lulu's 10 okay. for me okay. uh, 9 would be Kill Em All no, no, you gotta explain why. Oh, so Lulu again. I heard the record. I thought it was just too much going on. I didn't get the poetry. The music didn't connect with me. I just don't find it interesting. Kind okay. of boring. Okay. Uh, Kill them all. <laughs> you know, I know that that was their intro record, but no, 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 um, um, no life to leather. <laughs> oh, that's right. That was the original name. <laughs> Yeah, kill them all. I just, you know, maybe I'm not a fan of thrash as much as a lot of folks yeah, are. Yeah, I, I can tell. So I just found it to be, yeah, it's not bad, but I, I'm not, I'm not just playing kill them all unless I'm playing pulling teeth. Uh, is that from the same record? Yeah, you really happens. don't like kill. That's the same record, though, right? Anastasia. 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 I'm always calling it Anastasia. Because you Anastasia. don't like kill them all. Pulling teeth. I love that. That's my favorite on that. Cliff Cliff is like, Shout yeah, that's what's up, man. Yeah. Cliff's I, like, I yeah. I love that. I'm going to come to you in your dreams. I'll <laughs> hug you, man. I love that. Yeah. Um, and this was hard, but Seven is Ride the Lightning. Um, I love this record. I think 
all of the songs flow into each other well. I just think immediately when it starts, it just sounds classic. Like it's a classic record. I think to whom the bell tolls, love that. <laughs> for whom? For I said to for whom? <laughs> for whom the bell? Tolls. You are so not a true. <laughs> I'm not a true, y'all. If you can't tell. Yeah, don't wanna be a true no more. Oh wait, no, I sk- I'm sorry. Cause I found later albums to live for. I, I messed up. I meant to say Master of Puppets on as eight, and then Ride the Lightning. As okay, seven. wait. So you have Lulu. Yeah, Lulu, Kill 'Em All, mm-hmm. Master of Puppets. So Master of Puppets is eight. nine. No eight. No, because if you're including Lulu, it's eleven. Albums. Oh, that's right. So I have to. <clears throat> that's right. Since we're including Lulu. Well, you included Lulu, so now I'm included. <laughs> Let me see. Here we go. So you got Lulu, Kill 'Em All. Oh, of course, I'm missing the Black Album, Black Metallica. Wow. <clears throat> so where would I put that one? So, so you got Lulu, Kill 'Em All. Mm-hmm. So eleven, ten, what's nine? We can say the Black Album then. Metallica. Okay, why? Black album sounds great, but when I listen to that, I don't. And I, I actually, I mean, there are some songs I love. I mean, I love Rome, um, but overall, as an album, it doesn't really hit me as hard for whatever reason. It's just, I don't know. It just, it just kind of goes by. I'm not. I'm. I'm really looking forward to listening to Rome, but then every other song, I'm just kind of like, mm. so <laughs> I, that's why it's so low. Okay, and. For Master of Puppets, I know, I know, I know, I know, (laughs) I know, I love Master of Puppets, Um, and I love the instrumental, is it the call of, no, it's not, it's the, Orion, I know, I know, I know, I'm like, Orion Orion. is the instrumental, I love Orion, Cthulhu is It's Rod the Lightning, right, yeah, see, I get those mixed up. (laughs) I love how you're just like, I'm not a true. I don't know. I know. It's like, y'all, y'all, go easy. <laughs> go easy on me. Um, but I do, I mean, it's not that, ma- obviously, Master of Puppets is a great record. I mean, I'm not saying it's not. I just think when I listen to it, I'm not moved as much as others probably are, I guess, because it's just like, it's good, you know, but it's like, I'm not going to say it's just a record because it's obviously a, it did a lot to open up the scene for, I mean, even with this new introduction on Stranger Things. So clearly, oh uh, yeah, it I did a lot to that. spark the interest. Master of Puppets is the greatest metal album of all time. Let's just get that out the way. Yeah. See, I can, yeah. And I'm, I'm going to listen to it again because it's been a minute since I've heard it. Probably. Oh, wow. Yeah. It's not a record I play often. Ooh. Yeah. But. <laughs> I love the cover art again. The cover mm-hmm. art is great. <laughs> uh, so then, let's see. Um, Ride the lightning. Yeah, I like Ride the lightning better than Master Puppets. Wow. Okay. And I, okay. I don't know. Okay. You know, okay. it's, and it's funny because Master Puppets has this like orange red tint, and Ride the lightning is blue. Mm-hmm. And I usually like red and orange, but anyway, um, Ride the lightning. Yeah, it just it's some. I rem- that was. I want to say, even though I didn't, I just remember that album. When I heard all of the Metallica records and I got to that, I remember that the most. Like, I remember just really feeling it. I was like, oh, wow, this is really good. Like, mm-hmm. so it's just something about that record that that really sounds fresh to me. Like Death Magnetic. 
<laughs> right. <laughs> um, and then after that, we have Injustice for All. Wait, what number are you at? This would this would be uh, this five five. Okay, yeah. so five Injustice. Okay. Yeah. I, listen, now it is interesting because the bass in this record is it's like no bass, no bass, yeah. and I love bass. But it's something about the guitars, and you're gonna probably look at me weird when I say this. But something about this record reminds me, because it was '88 or '89 when it came. Justice '88. '88. Yeah, so it reminds me of a bit of Love Sexy in terms of. Oh, the guitar- no, 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 I don't want it. No, why? 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 Because no. of the tones of the guitars. No. 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 Prince was playing this Mad C guitar at the time, which is the white one, the one he has in Alphabet Street. And there are some after shows with this is a particular tone and it's very maybe maybe he was using a Mesa boogie. Maybe he was. Yeah, because I love the guitar. I love the way that this album sounds with the guitars, like the guitars sound really crunchy and really distinct. And I just I love hearing the perspective of how music sounds to someone who doesn't play it. It's very interesting. Yeah, right. it's interesting. You're like crunchy. <laughs> Fresh, it's it's fascinating to me, because I'm so used to listening listening to people who play music talking about Metallica. Right. So hearing somebody who has absolutely no idea what anything is in reference to that, I, this is fascinating to me. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, I, I I like the way Injustice for All sounds. I think this album sounds really good, and it even without the bass or not, as the bass is not as pronounced, I still find it remarkable to listen to. Then four would be Reload. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, I think it's a good compliment to Load. I think it just kind of picks up really well from where Load left off. Same session, so yeah. yeah. So I, I, yeah, I just it's something about that record. It's like it's the '90s, you know. It just feels very dare I say, dude, bro, in a way. But I, I like that. I like that aspect of it. Fuel, fuel is the dude bro anthem. So yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> fuel is. I mean, it just but yeah, it feels. I don't know. I listen to the record and I, it's. I like listening to it. This is a record I played for someone too. I played it for my friend Rich before I came here, and he really liked it too. So yeah, I just it just sounds good. Okay. <laughs> okay. And load. Will you say what's your quote about load? Load walk. No, 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 no. You go. You get. Okay. Well, load is. It's. It seems very personal, mm-hmm. from the perspective of James, and I, I like that vulnerability that's expressed in it. But it's also very visual when I listen to it. I love the the themes that are interwoven throughout the album. So, yeah, I really like load. Um, then we would go to. This is three. Hardwired, okay. self destruct. Yeah, great album. I think this album. I mean, it was really hard between choosing this and another record, which is ends up being the, the top, my number one. But Hardwired, I enjoy because, I mean, I had a pleasure of seeing some of those songs live, and they translate really well. The song I'm referring to is uh. Ma, no, you, have you seen Ma? No, I wish. I have not seen Moth. What song? I don't remember that. We seen a uh, spit out the bone. A spit, yes. Spit and hardwired. You saw yeah. right. Yeah, yeah, those two. 
I would love to see Mouth into the Flame. I love that song. Mm-hmm. I just, it's I love crazy. the way it sounds on the uh, SNM too. They played it right. They, it sounds great. Like it's just, yeah, it's, it's one of my favorite songs actually. So wow. just for that song alone, it's just so great. A Mouth into a Flame. It's, okay. it's really good. And it just—it's a very colorful album, and I like how the the cover art has all of their, you know, all of these phases of their faces of the band members in there. You like, okay? Yeah, it's, like. it's very like, yeah, and I like the just hardwired to self destruct, like it, it's very colorful. <laughs> Two would be Saint Anger. Saint yeah, Anger yeah. is a phenomenal record, of course. I think this album. When I first heard it, I was scared because I remember you were prepping me before I heard it. You was like, just so you know, a lot of people don't like it. But when I heard it, I, I really connected with just the way the album is formed. And even though I miss the guitar solos, I don't miss. It's not like I'm like, oh, this really needed a guitar solo because the way they're playing just sounds really well. I love Purify. I love Sweet Amber. Like all of the songs just, they just sound really good. And for like for me it, it is true like it does it is, it is one of those records i play when i'm feeling angry but it gives me sort of a calmness mm-hmm. after it goes through and i relate to that calmness and I, I like how it's very therapeutic and it's one of those records that you won't forget it when you listen to it at least i feel like the way it's recorded you can't help to remember it because it sounds like it was recorded in a tin can or the the drums are very abrasive at times but that's what gives it like this bell so i i really enjoy saint anger and i love the title track i just i think everything about this album conceptually really lands yeah frantic dirty window invisible shoot me again like it's just such a yeah it just has all of these moments in it that go to the theme of the album so i enjoy it and number one would be Death Magnetic. <laughs> Death Magnetic, as I said earlier, it's something about this album. Like, it, it just sounds good. I, I just, everything comes together so well. And and I'm including Beyond Magnetic to be included. <laughs> That's what I'm talking right. about. Because when I first heard, mm-hmm. you know, Bully the Way is one of my favorite, like, the way James sings this song is just so good. Like the flow of how he sings it and it is, yeah, it get chills. Like very rarely am I listening to a record and I get that chill feel. Usually that comes live, but with this record, I just, I feel the soul. I feel the passion and it harmonizes well with the music. So, the middle section is uh, pretty unlike anything they've done before. So when, just uh, a bullet away. Just, yeah. 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 That breakdown. So, yeah. It's just like, yeah. It's cool. It's cool. So yeah, that's my top. All right, 10. come on, come on, my apocalypse. Let's go. My uh, she come on, come this. on. I don't know the lyrics of my. Crushing metal, ripping skin, toxic bodies, mannequins, spilling blood, feeding gas. Mega flesh, stuff is fine, dripping bloody Valentine, trying to face spinning glass. I'm gonna have spit to apart, spit apart, spit apart, spit it, spit it out. <laughs> come on, man. Come I'm on. gonna have to remember that, like I had to get purified. My apocalypse. Yeah. <laughs> Very good, my friend. All right, here we go. Oh, my goodness. So 11. Dang. Okay. So I did 10. Now, now I did 11 because you include a noodle. So number 11 for me, Kill Em All. 
I love all their albums, so the, this is not like what, anything's bad or anything, but Kill 'Em All, it's their first album. Again, it's like what I was talking about with Stevie Wonder. They're just, you know, getting the feelers out. Mm-hmm. And they're young. It's it's a fun album. I'm a punk kid, so to me, even though it's for all intents and purposes thrash, to me it's still a punk album with some metal elements. <laughs> right. But, you know, where I stand with music or whatever it's they got way better in terms of subject matter in terms of their playing in terms of production in terms of the fuller picture they got way better so kill them all is a great first it's to me it's one of the best first albums debut albums of all time but in the scheme of metallica's uh catalog yeah no It's got the, the <laughs> my favorite riff on all of Kill 'Em All is the end, and Metallica does this very well. They have these amazing riffs for like five to ten seconds. I'm like, why don't you play that the whole song? So the riff at the end of Whiplash, like, why did you not play that for for like part of a bridge or something? But I love that they have some great riffs on there. But yeah. They get way better. I mean, their second album was miles ahead of the first album. So come on. So yeah, Kill Em All, number 11. Number 10, speaking of, Lightning. Why is Ride the Lightning number 10 for me? Because again, the subject matter, I feel like, is much more advanced on their later albums. They talked about nuclear proliferation. They talked about the death penalty, perspective of somebody on death row. They addressed those things. They even talked about creeping death. <laughs> you know, it's just anything from the death penalty to Passover. I mean, they had very interesting subjects to talk about. But again, it got way more advanced in the later albums. Right. I'm also, like, if we're talking about technically, I'm not, again, not a big fan of reverb. But that's not why I put lightning in number 10. I just think. They got way better in terms of subject matter, in terms of their playing, etc. Number nine, The Black Album. Uh, this is one of the greatest produced albums of all time. I don't care what anybody says. But <laughs> the thing that makes this album on the low, slower scale for me is Don't Tread on Me. Uh, I mean, The Unforgiven, Kirk solo is the greatest solo in all of Metallica. The Nothing Else Matters solo that James does, one one of his greatest solos. But yeah, Don't Tread On Me pulls the album down for me. And uh, I'm sure you know why. (laughs) So if you've been listening to this podcast at any point, you know why uh, that song pulls the album down for me. But it is a solid set of albums. The fact that this is where you really see James begin to explore a lot of the personal stuff. I love that stuff. And this is another example, the struggle within another example where they have a riff for 10 seconds and it's just gone. It's the greatest riff on the album. It's like, what are you doing? Come on, extend that riff. Now it's in their YouTube, like at the end of their Yeah, for what, like 20 seconds? It's like, come on, man. Like make that a bridge riff while there's a solo going over it or something. I don't know. But yeah, Don't Try to Me pulls down the whole album for me. Number eight. This was my favorite album for years until the current favorite album uh, knocked it out of the number one spot. 
it is number eight puppets. Why? Because <laughs> again, I think in terms of subject matter, uh, in terms of the fuller picture of Metallica, I just think they got better later on. Puppets to me is the greatest metal album of all time. I don't know a lot of people who would argue against that, but there it is. But objectively, it is the greatest metal of all time. It has, to me, one of the greatest songs about moshing or slam dancing battery, but it also has the, the double entendre of, you know, the, the battery street will forever live inside of me. But then it also, you know, has uh, lyrics that allude to what we think of when we talk about battery. So it's just such a well-written song. And this is really when you begin to see James Hetfield shine in his songwriting, but he hasn't yet perfected it in the way that he, he has in later years. So for a group of 24, 25 year olds, this is a perfect album. But again, I think that they got That's way amazing. better in the, I know, wow. I mean, lightning, whether we were 22, I mean, this is, That's insane. I know. It's insane. So yeah, I, I love puppets. Again, it was my favorite number one album for 30 years. <laughs> I do think they got way better uh, in terms of the fuller picture. Number seven. What's number seven? Hmm. <laughs> Ride the Lightning? No, because that's 10. Oh, that's 10. Lulu is oh, seven. Yeah, Lulu is seven. Oh. So, Lulu. Oh, yeah. That's. Okay. You're like, ew. Okay. <laughs> so, why is Lulu number seven for me? Um, I am not too big on Lou Reed, actually. I like his later stuff where he became a Buddhist and did a lot of instrumental stuff. I really like that stuff okay. when he got together with Laurie Anderson. And I like that stuff. The reason I like Lulu, there are some problematic things about it for sure. In terms of the lyrical or poetic content, mm. the reason I appreciate Lulu and will defend Lulu is because I think it's ultimately uh, it's taken from the Lulu cycle of plays by Frank Witterkin, the German dude. But it's ultimately, as the album goes al along, it really does turn into Lou Reed. It's very brilliantly penned in that way. So when I first heard the album in 2014, I was like, what is this? So a friend of mine played, was like, oh, Metallica, Lou Reed have an album. I'm like, they do? Played, I was like, what is this? What Small is town girl. I'm like, no, no. <laughs> right. What is this? I had a massively visceral reaction to it because I'm not that into Lou Reed. But of course, like everything else, I took a different turn as I became an, you know, an amputee. And I look at this album uh, from the perspective of someone who has compartmentalized a lot of things in their lives. So it's this great fear of getting close to anybody it's a fear of receiving actual love from anyone. Hmm. So to, um, what was the lyrics? To uh, worship someone who actively despises you and repeat that. And so someone who has this transactional relationship with you because it's from the perspective of a sex worker. Hmm. And so someone who has a transactional relationship with you and doesn't particularly want to get close to you. 
and so people are trying to show this person love. It's like, I don't, I'm cutting myself off from that. I don't feel that's something that I could achieve with someone else or within myself. And so that's what I see in the songs. So yeah, there's some things I'm like, what? Ugh, no, like, this is horrible. This is, why Why are you writing this, Lou Reed? But the gist of the album, I think is beautiful. And to get towards the end of the album with the junior dad, I think that has finally merged into Lou Reed. So hmm. if you listen to Lou Reed's music throughout the years, you see a lot of that. Yeah, again, the album gradually turns into Lou Reed. It's no longer Lulu, it's like Lou Reed. So it's like Lou, Lou. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> oh, and Junior go. Dad is this person who is just reflecting towards the end of their life, Lou Reed. And they're like, I've turned into my father. I've turned into this person that I never wanted to be, this person who has rejected me. And now I'm them. And I think it's absolutely beautiful. And the song is what 19 minutes and 30 seconds or something like that, or 20 seconds, I don't know. And the only time you hear speaking in it is for less than half the song. And the rest of the song, it's like 15 minutes of just, it's just very meditative. And I really think that's a perfect way for the final Lou Reed album to go out. I think the riffs are excellent on the album. I think, in a funny way they do go with Lou Reed, especially like Mistress Dread. It's just like, uh, Mistress Dread. he's talking slow in that and then they're playing really fast, kind of like thrashy. So I think it's just perfect. The juxtaposition of Lou Reed and Metallica is perfect to me. And so I don't, I don't see Lulu as a work of art in the same way I do Saint Anger, but I do see it as a tale of someone who has struggled to find self-love, who has struggled to find love with other people. And then at the end realizes, wow, I've turned into the person I really didn't want to be. And I think that's beautiful. That gives it a new perspective that makes me want to listen to Junior Dad at least. I love to, I will defend Junior Dad like I defend St. Anger. I love, to me, like even if there was no other song on Lulu, that to me, Junior Dad is worth that whole album. And I know people are like, what? But I think Junior Dad is really worth that whole album. And I think really does tell the story. It rounds out the whole story of Lulu and really does round out the whole story of Lou Reed, if you ask me. Mm -hmm. I'm not Lou Reed, so I don't know. But just from my perspective, I think it's a perfect way for Lou Reed to go out. I think Metallica taking that risk, they already took it with St. Anger. You know, I don't think SNM was as much of a risk as St. Anger or Lulu. Lulu was probably the biggest artistic risk that they took. But I just see Metallica at this point as being an experience. <laughs> and to me, Lulu was a Metallica experience versus a band Metallica playing with Lou Reed. I consider Lulu to be as much a Metallica album as it is a Lou Reed album. It says Metallica and Lou Reed on it, and I know people don't like it, so like it's not a Metallica album. They're both credited on it. Yeah. And yeah, it could be seen as I'm just backing him up, but it's a collaborative effort. And so I just see it in that way. I love that they did the album. Again, there were some things on like, what, whoa. Like, 
I'm not into that. But I think overall, the general message I get from the album, the feel of the album, I love it. I I love Lulu, man. I don't care. I I will defend Lulu. I mean, not the problematic aspects of it. It does it deserves heavy critique for some of the stuff inside the album. But overall, I will defend Lulu. I think that is a special album, and yeah, ninety percent are wrong. Time I I'm wrong. This is the one time I can say that I'm wrong. When in t- 2014, when I had that visceral reaction, when I was like, "This is horrible," I was wrong. Because <laughs> I love I love Lulu and will defend it for the reasons I just stated. Why? So yeah, I uh, yeah, Hardwired number six, Hardwired. Yeah. It's I love that it is uh, various elements of their career. I think they're at the stage in their lives where they're like, we have nothing to prove. We are happy with where we're at, like mentally, spiritually, musically, whatever. maybe not musically. I think James Seth feels just like I'm never satisfied. I'm always looking for the perfect riff. But I think that they really have come to a point where we're exploring where we've been to get to where we are now. And it's not a repetition of that. It's not like, well, we need to rehash Kill Em All. We need to rehash Lightning or Puppets or whatever. But I think it's just really rethinking on, you know, everything you've gone through in life and saying, you know, this is a result of that. And I love that about Hardwired. It starts off, it's a bookend. So Hardwired, <laughs> it's about the bone. It like bookends to two thrash songs similar to their older albums actually (laughs) but it's got all these other things in between so it does talk about ptsd from being in the u.s military i'm guessing they're talking about specifically u.s military but it discusses the ptsd from that when you leave the military active duty it does a dedication homage tribute to uh, lemmy kilmeiser from motorhead of course, they love Motorhead. They did the Motorheadache thing in a Garage Inc. They did a, a, another song about Cthulhu. It's actually my favorite song from the Cthulhu series. Um, there's just so many great songs. My favorite song on the album is Atlas Rise. A lot of people, I, I have even said that, that I think that the Screaming Suicide song does reference Atlas Rise in some way. Maybe that's why I love that song because it does reference that I don't know but (laughs) Hardwired is amazing it's an amazing album I think it's a a composite of everything they've done but it doesn't sound stale at all like going to fresh I think it is an album that symbolizes their maturity it is an album to me it is the first true Papa Het album because it Spells concerned father all over that album. <laughs> it's just like, like moth into flame. It's just, it, I love that album. So uh, number five, Reload. So Reload is another, it's a, a bookend to load, but it doesn't have the openly personal stuff. Like it alludes to a lot more stuff in terms of the personal stuff, but I don't care. I know du- the Dude Bro Anthem is Fuel. I love that song. I don't care what anybody says. I love it so much. <laughs> and then Fixer. Um, there's just so many, so many songs 
that are that are great. I think it is to me, honestly, the load and reload sessions. I like the production better on those albums. Don't 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 hate me, but <laughs> but yeah, Bob Rock. Them working with Bob Rock was a great decision. It brought out their talents more. Their writing, their playing, all of these things. It is some of Lars's best playing. Like when he just got down to the basics, some of his best playing. Justice. Why is Justice number four? I know the trues are happy. No, I don't know. So Justice to me is the what's going on of metal. It is the first Metallica album where I said I love Metallica. Hmm. They're just like, the U.S. government sucks. And I was like, there you <laughs> yeah. go, Metallica. I love you. So it, it's, it's go, in my top five because of that. I don't care. I don't care. I go. mean, it literally was talking about McCarthyism. It was talking about the destruction of the earth by humans. I talked about war. It's just, it's, one is my Amputated Legs theme song. To me, one is the second greatest song of all time. So mm. yeah, Justice is up there for me as a Metallica album number four. Yes, I know there's no bass on it. And that's really sad. But there's no Metallica album that doesn't have an issue with it. Like everybody's going to have an issue with any one of their albums. So, you know, I don't know. <laughs> but Justice it's it's what it's the what's going on of metal i don't care yes death magnetic that's that's your album yeah. that's number three for me it is uh, a lot of people say that it is uh, a sibling of justice i think i yeah mm. i think in some ways it is i love it because it is a continuation of the stream of consciousness of metallica that uh route they decided to take after saint anger mm. It's not straight up, but there's a lot of allusions to addiction. So the Death Magnetic and Beyond Magnetic sections were really discussing the life, if you will, of Lane Staley, who is the singer of Alice in Chains, who uh, struggled with addiction. So a lot of lyrics were alluding to that. But I really do think they're still along the lines of alluding to a lot of what uh, James Hadfield was dealing with in his therapy. So I really do think a lot of lyrics were alluding to that as well. Uh, I just, it's its a beautiful album. The riffs are, ooh, butter. Incredible. Riffs are, but I'm vegan, but I'm still using butter, right? <laughs> so the, the riffs were just dope. It's just a solid album. I know people are talking about the uh, loudness wars. That doesn't get in the way as much for me. I think the songs are so solid that I don't really focus on that. I also listen to the album on vinyl. So maybe that's why it doesn't bother me as much. I don't know. Starting off with like a heartbeat and then going. And then ending with my apocalypse and then everything in between. Judas Kiss is my favorite uh, song on that album. It's just oh, yeah. the riffs. And it's a it's an album that, again, is just... It's not a straight 4-4 four, four album. A lot of components to it. It's such a beautiful album. It is a perfect album to me. I'm saying that, but there's two other albums. So you know. <laughs> we know which ones those are. So what? We know which ones those are. Yeah, but what's number one? <laughs> no. <laughs> so number two is not what all of you are thinking. It, number, number two is actually St. Anger. Here's why. Right. Because Load is number one. I'm kind of jumping ahead, but Load is number one because 
It walked so St. Anger could run. There it is. <laughs> it was lowered that birth St. Anger. Because James Hetfield did a, a, a tiny stint of therapy around that time when he was writing for load and everything. And so you hear a lot of those lyrics. And that's why I don't understand. Everyone's just like, oh, the lyrics of St. Anger are just so simplistic. And it's like, Lode is, uh, to me, uh, along the same lines. Like, he's talking about the struggles with alcoholism. He's talking about just struggles of dealing with grief. It's just a, a lot of these things. So I'm not, I'm not sure why people, in terms of the lyrics, are not into St. Anger because I think Purify is one of the greatest depictions of a process of therapy of all time. Yeah. But uh, I don't know. People, for some reason, connect with Lode, but not St. Anger. I don't know. But yeah, that is the reason Lode is number one and St. Anger is number two, even though St. Anger is in my top 10 of best albums of all time. <laughs> <laughs> but to me, Lode is Metallica's greatest produced albums. It has, again, some of Lars's best playing some of the great like blues based riffs just again stream of consciousness lyrics just so so much greatness coming out of load and so yeah that's the top 11 of metallica and top 10 of favorite i don't know if you did 10 but favorite albums yeah, <laughs> and before we get into where we're talking about i know this is a long episode but i do want to talk with you about Jafar Jackson, Jermaine's kid. That's Jermaine's kid, right? Yeah. Looks just like Jermaine. So apparently he's going to star the, the Anton Fuqua. <laughs> so it's called Michael. Oh, wow. As we talked about last episode, uh, Michael, now we know the name of it, uh, this biopic or biopic, uh, it's like Apple, what is it? Let's call the whole thing off. So it says, this is from Rolling Stone, it says, Jafar Jackson will portray his uncle, Michael, in the upcoming Antoine Fuqua-directed biopic, Michael. This film is being touted to explore all aspects of the... I'm telling you it's not. No. <laughs> You're like, no. Because, A, Jafar Jackson starring in it, so it's... They're not... Yeah, they're not... They're not... No. Um, this film is being touted to explore all aspects of the pop icon's life including his most iconic performances that led him to become the greatest entertainer of all time. Given the biopic has the approval of the estate, it's unclear if the child sexual abuse allegations against the late musical icon widely documented in 2019's Leaving Neverland will be addressed in Michael. I highly doubt it. And if it does, uh, they'll just scratch the surface. This is why they will not explore all aspects. In a previous statement announcing the film's release, Michael's mother, Catherine Jackson, said, ever since Michael's little, as a member of the Jackson 5, he loved the magic of cinema. As a family, we are honored to have our, our life story. Wait, I thought it was Michael's life story. Oh. See, that's what I'm saying. Jermaine, Jermaine's hands going to be all over this. As a family, we are honored to have our life story come alive on the big screen. This will be the first major film role for Jafar, who is the second youngest son song they said song in here typo to jackson five member and michael's brother jermaine jackson dynamite <laughs> dynamite <laughs> so in other news with michael jackson this is going around like hotcakes as they say brad sumberg his material was leaked so we are being flooded with michael jackson material 
50 gigabytes of unreleased Michael Jackson content. 50 gigabytes? 50 gigabytes, including unreleased songs and demos leaked after a laptop and hard drive belonging to MJ's engineer, Brad Sundberg, were stolen at a seminar this past Friday. And <laughs> so the community right now is like torn because everyone's like, oh, no one should listen to these leaks. And then everyone else is like, I'm listening to these leaks. It's just interesting how the community, the MJ community is reacting to this because being from the Prince community, I'm used to bootlegs being leaked. And, you know, what can I say? I listen to bootlegs. I'm not going to act like I don't. But folks are like, no one, no one should listen to it. And they have this stance of fans shouldn't listen to it, even though I don't even foresee the MJ estate releasing new material anytime soon. So this is like the time where people are really just like consuming all of this material and loving it. What do you think about these leaks and how do you feel about leaks in general? Stop Napster. Stop. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. This, this sounds like a Napster situation. Yeah. Uh, it actually does. Yeah. <sighs> I mean, I don't intend to listen to them. I don't really yeah. do MJ posthumous stuff. Did they find out who stole no, the laptop? Still, they identified, well, they identified the, the, the person who likely stole it, but they haven't caught them yet. Wait, they identified but didn't catch them? Yeah. Based off of... So uh, they know who did it? They, if they identify, they know who did it. So they could probably the easily this find... Right here, they're fine. online. He's on the run. Uh, yeah, but if they identified who did it, Antonio that person's probably on social media somewhere. Yeah. That's that's him? That's likely the guy who they think did it, yeah. The culprit. I'm sorry, that guy looks like a Michael Jackson fan. I know. He does. That guy looks like <laughs> a textbook Michael Jackson right. fan. That's funny. <laughs> wow. Fifty gigabytes. So like there's a video that will sleep down. We have the Studio version of Michael singing "Childhood" twenty minutes on YouTube. Twenty minute version of "Childhood." Oh no, I'm not listening to that. It's when he was doing. Yeah. It's what? Good. Yeah, they got. Yeah, I, I, I'm actually on the side of people who say don't listen to it because I think it's I think it's disrespectful to. I mean, what if that's stuff that Michael didn't want out? I mean, the Prince leaking stuff, I, I know some of that. Did some of that happen when he was still here? Oh, yeah. I mean, so, yeah, I, release, I mean, that's a little different because, I mean, I, I listened to stuff all day that got leaked when Michael was here. So, right. <laughs> but now that he's not here and somebody stole, I think that's a little different of a situation. I mean, I'm not saying people don't. I'm just saying you ask me. Right. I, I'm, I don't Well, yeah, I mean. Not into it. I'm not out here going to, I mean, I don't think the MJ community is like the Prince estate or the Prince community rather, where folks would literally print these bootlegs on vinyl and CDs and have all <laughs> and, and charge people hundreds of dollars. Oh, wow. That's, that's, that's the known thing that happens in the Prince community. Like mm-hmm. taking these bootlegs, putting it on CD and stuff. I don't mm-hmm. know if it's going to go that far, but I'm not going to be surprised that people are going to listen to stuff that got leaked because yeah, yeah, yeah. there's not been new MJ material since Escape 2014. Well, I guess the the recent Thriller 40, but that's just like five new songs. Whereas <laughs> this is video footage. It's Wait, it's video yes. footage too? Yes. What are you His doing? His whole laptop So here's stolen. so here's my thing. This is I am not a big fan of the cloud. I'm right, just right. I don't But this is a situation where I would support cloud storage. 
Yeah. Exactly. So none of that's I I guarantee you none of that stuff's on cloud storage. I guarantee it because if it was, I don't think it would be he would be making as big of a deal. I yeah, think that pretty... stuff hard. I think that's hard drive stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's bad. That's bad. I know. I mean, I'm not saying I don't feel sorry for the guy. I mean, I was supposed to see Brad in Sweden, like in 2018, but he branded canceled. who? Brad, the the producer. Who? Had oh, I thought you said branded. I'm like Bruce Wadine. What? No, Brad. R.I.P. Bruce Wadine. <laughs> hey. Yeah, I was supposed to see him, but he uh, he canceled for health reasons. But he's oh, been Bra- doing you were supposed seminars. to see Brad in Sweden. I got. Yeah. I just. Oh, I just got, got what you said. <laughs> right. <laughs> So yeah, it's um a lot of like things are being leaked every day. Like today, like ten songs were released. How much? Ten. I have it. I mean, <laughs> well, I know. Right. Uh, I I have a feeling because I live with you that I'm eventually gonna hear it. So, but yeah. I would not listen to it on my own. And yeah, why was that stuff not in the cloud? Because it sounds like maybe I'm wrong again. Ninety percent wrong. But yeah, it doesn't. I think if it was, he wouldn't. He wouldn't made make a whole. He made a video made about a video, it. Yeah. yeah, I don't think it's in the cloud. It's big news because it's like wow. Like I mean, <laughs> ooh, every day. Because imagine having he has he took his whole laptop, so he has access to all the stuff he had on there. Homeboy, why is this not in the cloud? <laughs> Do you have a Dropbox account, right. homie? Yeah, this should be in Dropbox, man. I'm telling you. What are you doing? See that this a situation like this is where I do support cloud. Yeah. Just like everyday stuff, no. Right. But it, it, Michael Jackson, no. Oh, oh that's yeah. bad. Yeah. Videos too. Videos. Full fledged. So Brad Sunberg definitely is old school. He's like, nah, it's fine. That I, I tell you, it, that's all hard drive out stuff. The <laughs> After he took oh, it. Oh my god. <laughs> I'm t- that's all hard drive right there. Yeah. So. Oh, that sucks. I, I, my, yeah, it's like, damn. What? I, I mean, it's like, huh? Hundreds. Yo. Uh, of demos, videos, pictures, gone. And it's all going to be on the internet now. I mean, they've already, like I said, 10 songs were released today. Yesterday was like seven songs. <laughs> what so what would you say the percentage of pro and con are in terms of the mj base i think a lot of people are you mean pros in terms of like people think it's good yeah that it got leaked and they could hear it versus people like nah man i would say it seems to be 50 50 i mean but a lot of folks are obviously like no you shouldn't listen to it and this is Mm -hmm. wrong this shouldn't happen but then a lot of folks who are prince fans as well they're like we used to this they're taking it like this happened and i kind of i mean i do empathize with that in a way because again i remember when prince was here his stuff was leaked all the time there were gigabytes of stuff mm-hmm. i vault you know just released which is interesting because he like yeah had the seal on the vault so that's exactly that's the stuff but you coming. know who leaked it was a lot of people who he used to work with a lot of his uh Ooh. yeah because you know you stop working for prince for a while you forgot you know, you take some USBs and you sell it <gasps> over. A lot of folks did that. Oh my goodness! Yeah, Ooh. bodyguards, oh, uh, wow. assistant managers. So after a while, in fact, it's rumored that likely Bonnie was actually fired because she leaked a lot of stuff. Really? 
Yeah. Body so, boy. So, I mean, I, again, wow. I'm not saying it was right and okay for this to happen to him, but when it's online, you're not going to stop people from listening to it. No, you're, just, I, I'm not saying that. I, I, I'm just answering your question. Like, what, what do I think about yeah, it? Yeah. I, I, I'm one of those people who say don't listen to it. I'm not saying that people aren't going to. I just say out of respect. Don't. I'm not gonna do it, but I know it's gonna happen because you because I live with you, so <laughs> I'm not yeah. gonna be like oh just I it's, it's I already I already I know you so yeah I, heard yeah, I know you need to hear this yeah. listen to this part <laughs> no watch him right watch him do this I, I already know yeah so uh, see this is people need to learn from seventy two seasons man. Like everybody who worked at that, anybody who knew about 72 seasons coming out said nothing. nothing. And then we all found out at the same time. That's how you do it. Old school, man. Yeah. Need to to learn from Metallica, (laughs) man. (laughs) They were like, what album? I mean, we're working on one. That's what it will tell you. Uh But what album are you talking about? It'll get done when it's done. But where is it gonna? Everybody speculating online, and then they shut that down. And then like one day, new album, new tour, new single. No, it was like whoa, whoa, whoa. That's the proper rollout, right? Yeah. Yeah. So they they did it old school. They they did it old school. And then the when screaming suicide is coming out, they they had stuff, and then they kept pulling it. They had it, then pull it, and then mm-hmm. then they had the email and all that. It's like oh okay, but yeah, they they did it. They doing it old school. And then like, oh, we having a movie where we're gonna be putting the album right. a day before it comes out. Hi everybody, go see it in the theaters. So yeah, they 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 doing it old school. I mean, yeah. the movie part's not old school, but, right. but yeah, everything they from experience know how things could be leaked. They know dead on from experience how things can get leaked. So they were like, yeah, we not doing that this time. Yeah. We, we putting a tight lid on that if. They probably were like, if you say, and apparently people there might not have even known until wow. the last second. Yeah. So it's, they, yeah, they kept a tight lid on that. And then they got their own record label too. So they don't, right. ooh, it's, ooh. Yeah. so yeah, they were like, nope, if you say anything, if you say anything, done. They probably were like, okay. It's probably, they probably had some. They made everybody sign an NDA. Yeah, well, NDA for sure. They're like, nope, for this album, NDA. Yeah. Like, come here, come here, come here, sign this. Sign your name. Dang man, dotted line. line. <laughs> you ain't saying nothing for this album, psycho. Yes. Ooh. Yeah. So yeah, I. Yeah, it's not something I support. I like. I don't. I don't understand. What's the point of stealing it? Yeah, I don't. Yeah. That's don't that's pointless to me. Why don't you go and steal the um, freaking laptop of these domestic terrorists of the police killing people? Mm-hmm. Steal that and steal the footage. <laughs> right. Why not do that? Yeah. So, yeah, man, I, I don't see the point of stealing Brad Sundberg's laptop. And I don't see the point why that stuff wasn't in the cloud for him. I know. That's, <laughs> that's, he must feel horrible right now. And I, I get yelled at all the time. For not putting stuff in the cloud, so now I'm. Just, I, I get it now. I imagine, I totally I get. It. <laughs> imagine waking up and you're like, and you like I say, it's the internet, so mm-hmm. it's gonna come a time. People, 
a time people are not going to even know the story of how it was out. They just think, oh, it's just Michael Jackson leak. Right. So. Yeah, I get it now. I'm an, I'm. <laughs> this putting me over to the side of the cloud. Uh, so if See? anything, I'm like, yeah, I'm getting. I, I'm I'm renewing my Dropbox right. account because I let that lapse. But now yeah. I'm like, oh yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think I'm gonna re up my Dropbox. That's why I got my mega, mega <laughs> upload in Dropbox because. Yeah, oh, that 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 convinced me, power. man. Yeah. That, <laughs> I don't know. Because all someone have to do with a hard drive is take it. That's what happened. Yeah, you know. that's what happened. Ooh. I mean, I wouldn't put pictures on there or anything. He I mean, I don't. Pictures, I don't take naked videos, pictures, of me, but but anything, videos. anything that's like creative, sense. real serious. Yeah. If I was to do like a sex tape, I don't intend on doing it. But you know, something like yeah, that, yeah. I'm not putting on the cloud. No. Something like music and stuff. Why did he not have a backup? Too. I don't, that's what everyone's like, dude. What is wrong with you? Uh, Brad, thank you. You have convinced me, Brad Sunberg. <laughs> I need to... Yeah. That well, I'm sold on that now because... <laughs> woo, Because I do make music and stuff. So, ooh, and I, you know... All right, so I'm going to ask you, though. What what does it sound like? I'm not trying to, uh, but I'm, I'm just saying... Because you it heard it. It sounds good. <laughs> it sounds good? For real? It does. Damn. But I heard it sounds good. For real? It does. It's songs you haven't heard before? Yes. Full songs. There's a song Legit you did from Chicago that was Chicago dumb. was yeah. on the other No, it's, it's nothing like that. It's almost like a, a, you know how Smooth Criminal and El Capone, those were like the mm-hmm. 40s of the gangster. It's mm-hmm. kind of on that same vein. It makes El Capone and Smooth Criminal sound So that like was the original, because that was the original title for Smooth Criminal was Chicago. And then well, whatever it's a, he... it's a, it sounds great. Oh damn! Don't do that. To... Why did I ask you that question, man? I deserve that. Okay, I deserve it. I deserve it. Dang uh, man. Yeah. Dang, he out here making dope tracks. Oh, don't make me listen to don't Michael. Don't make me listen to it. You asked. I'm telling I you. I did. I deserve that, man. I deserve it. I deserve it. I deserve it. Dang. Yeah. Dang. Like, for real? Is there another version of Someone Put Your Hand Out? Which, no. You know, yeah. For real? Yeah. <laughs> Why? Dang, I was like, man. whoa. For yeah. Real? So... That's the MJ news amongst the biopic um, of the movie. A lot of MJ move, uh, news in the last. So here's the two takeaways. The unheard, now heard MJ music is dope. And Brad Sumberg needs to put his stuff in, in the, the cloud. cloud. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Dang, That's, man. Yes. Yeah, you go. I know, I know you're going to play it, so. Um, I'm yeah. gonna, I'm gonna end up hearing it, but I'm not gonna do it. Dang, that's why you, why MJ? Hee <laughs> hee, man, you suck, man. Oh, laughing, you suck. Get out of here, man. I'm talking to you. The thing with Michael, 
I wish people would stop rationalizing his relationship with kids because I've poured over research about the cases. I do not see sufficient evidence that he touched kids in that way. That said, his relationships with kids was not something that didn't warrant critique. It warranted great critique. He used kids to deal with his issues. He should have been going to therapy. So we're talking about St. Anger. He should have been going to therapy to deal with whatever childhood trauma he experienced. But he used kids without the kids' consent. So the kids are just seeing Michael Jackson. But they're not realizing what Michael Jackson's ulterior motive was, was to not deal with his childhood trauma. Mm -hmm. That needs heavy critique. Absolutely. So to me. That's it. I know people like look at child abuse in one way, but that is a form of child abuse. If you're using kids for your own motives to not address whatever problems you had, to to me, that is a form of child abuse. I want to be very clear. I do not or have not seen sufficient evidence that he sexually abused kids, but he, he did perform child abuse in that the children he hung out with in order to deal with his problems did not give consent as to why he was hanging out with those kids. Right. And that's the part I think people need to focus on. For some reason, Michael out of everybody gets excused because it's like, he didn't do anything with the children. It's like, yes, there's not been, at least in our knowledge, sufficient evidence that suggests he sexually assaulted those children, but how he used children to compensate for the problems that he had in his own childhood is problematic. I don't see how that can't be seen as true. Like it's clearly problematic and he definitely would have benefited if he went to therapy. So all of this excuse, all of these excuses that people have for Michael, I think that's what they need to be focused on. How he spent time with the children basically would, you know, he'd go on from another child and have another child come around. And then when the child would grow up, find another child to hang out with. I think that does need to be stated. And I don't think he's, he didn't pull a Menudo or anything. Oh, the kid turned 16, he stopped hanging out. He hung out with Macaulay Culkin as he grew up or Emmanuel Lewis. So it's not like he rejected kids. It's like, oh, you're not 10 anymore or whatever. My concern is that the kids understood why he was hanging out with him on one level, but he had another understanding of why he did it Mm. and rationalized it. It was like, well, kids... You know, they don't have any judgment or whatever. It's like, no, you had a reason for hanging out with kids. You don't deal with your problems. They were not aware. That's why you were doing it. I haven't seen evidence of it in terms of that type of abuse, what people focus on the abuse for. But we really do need to address that children are used without their consent uh, mentally as well. While this may not be evident and they may not particularly have any scars from it. It doesn't mean it's not abuse. I think those things really do need to be addressed because what 44-year-old man be hanging out with 10-year-old? No. Anytime that, and that's the thing, like when you put it like that, if you were to ask someone, okay, so would you have a problem with someone of Michael's age hanging out with your children? Then so why is Michael okay? How is it okay Mm -hmm. for Michael to do it, but then you wouldn't have that same feeling for someone else? Right. Like that's... That's not crooked. That's not family. Yeah, that's not family. Someone who just was like, no, I love children. They can come over. They can have sleepovers. You wouldn't have a problem with that. 
Here's why I know that it got to be so much because after that trial, he wasn't hanging out with kids like that. Oh, yeah. So he was like, oh, okay. Oh, okay. (sighs) Like that was a wake up call for him. And hopefully at some point in his life, he did get some therapy. But it sounds to me as if he grew up in a family that was just like, no, that's we don't do that. So getting to the abuse that happened to him, his father said, huh. don't call me father or dad or pop or whatever. I'm Joseph. So that's the first thing. The relationship between father and child was transactional. Yeah. Like you are a means to make money for me. So I'm your manager. I'm Joseph. And then if Marlon or River took a, a dance step that was a mistake, they got beat. If they did anything, they got beat. And then they got a little bit older. It's like, you're ugly. Your nose is too big. Your hair, this, that, or the other. You know, those kids were abused. I grew up in the same environment. So, uh, you know, I get it. But I wasn't like, hey, I'm going to hang out with only kids. (laughs) I don't think he spent the majority of his time with kids like that. But... That's what he was known for, and he rationalized it, and that is a problem. So, yeah, when I was in my 20s, and I hung out. There were, like, a couple kids that I hung out with, and, you know, and their mother was away. I was like, was like, hey, I'll hang out with your kid while you're away at your job or whatever. But it wasn't, you know, it's like having a family friend or something. The kid's six, seven years old, and you play puzzles with them. Or, you know, they're playing with their dolls or their trucks and you just, you know, I I think that's one thing. Like, I'm not saying, oh, when you're adult, don't hang out with kids at all. Because, oh, yeah, that's not what I'm saying at all. Because I think kids need adults in their life who are stable. So that's what I'm talking about. But Michael Jackson, that's what he was known for was hanging out with kids. So that's the whole other thing. And the reason why he did it, and he was very public about it. It's like, I hang out with kids because I don't trust adults and kids don't need anything from me. That's a very toxic thing to say. And so this is where I'm leading to with the colorism and the, I'm I'm like, we're going somewhere with this. Michael Jackson, it sounds to me, I don't know, never got proper therapy for whatever struggles he has as a child and trauma he has as a child and so he has a particular perception of childhood and idealizes this particular type of childhood and he keeps children in this particular it's like kids grow Mm -hmm. and kids struggle and have these things but his idea of childhood was like peter pan his fascination with children wasn't even allowed to flourish to let the kids mature that's a problem (laughs) It's like, oh, Wonderland, and we just go play with ponies and, you know, no. I get that he totally disassociated with a particular part of himself because of the trauma. But you got to get help for that, homie. Like, you can't use children because of what your father did to you. I grew up in a very abusive, traumatic situation as a child. But there's a point where I had to say, and Michael Jackson actually was a huge component of helping me realize this, which is why I will be grateful to Michael Jackson for this. He helped me understand that I need to get some help and Mm -hmm. not sit in my trauma. So I am, I'm one, this is why I say Michael Jackson is a teacher, man. 
Because I am so appreciative of Michael Jackson. Studying him, just like, yeah, you got to get some help, man. Yeah. You can't sit in that abuse your whole life. Because he never did it. It was it was a teachable moment for me studying this man's life. Mm-hmm. You know, the idea of boundaries and the idea, it's just, we got to get some help if we need it. And, and it's okay right. to ask for that. And so with that, like you see what Joseph Jackson instilled in all of the family for the most part. Maybe I'm making an assumption, but I'm going on visuals. There's a ton of colorism in that family. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, right. So, except for Reby, I think Reby is the only person who you know, married someone who is African. And I'm not even saying, oh, if you are in an interracial relationship, that that's not even what I'm saying. Because I think being attracted to someone of a different ethnicity and culture that that's a perfectly normal thing to do mm-hmm. but there's a difference between being attracted to someone of a different culture and ethnicity and having a fixation on it there's a big difference yeah, <laughs> and i feel like the jacksons, the jacksons have a, a fixation, fixation on it yeah to this point where it's just uh michael jackson's kids being like i'm black i'm like right. no <laughs> no no yeah. paris jackson i'm sorry paris, paris jackson, jackson is not african exactly. So Michael Jackson was the father. He raised those kids. And I think for what it's worth, I think he did a pretty good job Mm -hmm. because that family is toxic. But telling your kid, no, (laughs) (laughs) even if they were African on some level, you know, everyone is if we look at the beginning of time, but it doesn't sound like from the conversation, Michael Jackson had a conversation with his kids if they are in any way African about passing, maybe you did. Or white privilege. Right. It was just like, you're black. Yeah. So that's how you move in the world. But that's not how they're seen in the world. Even if they have 1 billion percent Jackson genes, they still are not seen in the world as that way. So if you haven't had a conversation with your kids about that when you were still alive, that's a problem. And I don't think he's had that conversation because I feel like they would have mentioned that. <laughs> yeah, no. Most of the time, Prince and Paris are just like, yeah, he told us that we were black, and that's how they identify. But and what does that mean? What does that mean? And Because that's not how they are seen. Exactly. Like, no one is looking at Prince or Paris. Nobody being like, thinking, hey, oh, you're, they, they, they are seen as people of European descent in this world. So there's a ton of people who are passing but their families did have that conversation with them. Either that or the family just totally didn't for survival. Right. I don't think Michael Jackson didn't tell them that for survival. Like, it's like that family has an issue with colorism. Yeah. Because <laughs> there's that picture. I'm, I'm sure you've seen it where it's the whole family. And so it's the older generations look like us. Right. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And then the younger generation is just like yeah. comes looking like. Prince of Paris. <laughs> so I was like, wow. Yeah, I've seen that. So again, there's no, nothing wrong whatsoever with being in an interracial relationship. So let's let's be clear about that. But we all know colorism runs rampant in a lot of our families. And that's what we're talking sure. about. Colorism ran very rampant in my family, especially my stepfather's side of the family. Mm-hmm. Whereas people were straight up told to marry light. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> so absolutely. My I dad, guarantee you that my, was going uh, on. Jackson my mom's family. side of the family, yeah. My grandpa, psh, whoo, 
<laughs> Louisiana. Yeah. You already know. Exactly. That colorism is a strong thing. So I, I, like, I don't know any of those people, but I'm just going on visuals. Mm-hmm. And it's just, it's very interesting. I think Rebe is the only one, and Janet are the only people that, well, Jermaine Dupree was not married to Janet, was she? Was she married? I think they were just like in a committed relationship, but not not married. But Rebe is the only one who, you yeah. know, out of this generation of Jacksons, they married an African dude that and was married to him for years I know. and years. But the rest of them, they're like, nope, uh-uh. nope, I married somebody who's, right. yeah. So I think that I really do think that we need to address uh, this situation, how people are raised, how uh, your people perceive. Because I think the thing about like just studying this guy, I think for him it was survival in a way. He attempted to his, resist his father so much because even though his father told his kids they were ugly and their features were ugly, apparently he would go off on white people. So it's just like, which one is it, Joe Jackson? Right. Like, uh, you know. And then Michael was asked about it. And he was just like, yeah, yeah, I don't see color. Oh, I not to say that. <laughs> like, I don't see color. I'm not like that. And so I think he did everything to resist his father. Yeah. Plus the internalization that was going on. So I don't think Michael wanted to be white because it, I grew up in the same way where I was told my features were ugly. My hair was ugly. My grandmother even put like bleaching cream on me and my sister. Oh, wow. So, but I didn't want to be white, but I did internalize a lot of that. And I grew up saying to myself, I want to get a ton of money so I can get a nose job. Hmm. Fortunately, I never got a nose job, but I did grow up wanting a nose job because I was told so often that my nose was ugly. Now I like my nose, but I was told so often this is ugly. That's ugly. So I just wanted to change everything. But that doesn't mean I want to be white. And I really do think that is the case for Michael Jackson. I don't think any of them wanted to be white. But I think in terms of their ideal mate, uh-huh. uh, they needed to look at the status of that. And so there was a connection to class and race, I think, with the Jacksons that really aren't be, it's not being discussed so it's this idea of like marrying up or whatever. Yeah. So yeah, I'm, I don't think anybody in Jackson's want to be white. And so I think that there's this mistake and this generalization of when that happens that people just like, oh, they oh they hate they hate being African. I, I don't think that's the case for everybody. And I, I don't think that was the case for Michael Jackson. But I think he internalized a lot of what Joe Jackson said about him that he wanted to be invisible and just appeal to everybody. I really Mm, think that is what ultimately happened. And I think him marrying Lisa Marie Presley was a huge part of that. It's just like, I'm marrying Elvis Presley's daughter. Daughter. Yeah, I felt like that was totally an intentional. That's a power move. Power move for sure. He knew what that would do. Exactly. Generations who grew up with Elvis, you're going to take his only daughter and say, yeah, I'm going to marry her. Yeah. Like that's clearly, that was strategic. Yeah. Yeah. And so I, I don't think that they didn't love each other, but it was a again, pur- Michael Jackson, multi-purposed. so much of what he did was <laughs> transactional, man. <Right>. Yeah. <laughs> so I have no doubts that like that was, he was like, I'm making moves on Lisa Marie, man. Mm-hmm. She was already married. I know. Right. 
He's like, <laughs> man, I'm making moves. So yeah, everything he did was strategic and transactional. So it's, uh, including his relationship with kids. And that is my problem. Yeah. Getting back to that. And then when Lisa Marie's like, yeah, I'm not trying to have kids with you, man. You too immature, whatever. What did he go do? Another, <laughs> Another transaction. Woman, right. Had De- kids with Debbie, Debbie Rowe. Right. So That's... everything he did was transactional. Yeah. It's like, we got to address that. Because ain't no African woman being right. like, I'm having kids with you, Michael Jackson. I'm just giving them to you. I'm sorry. No, we ain't doing that. <laughs> so again, it's a, it's a, and so if I was a white woman, I would be insulted at what, what these men think, think of white women. Yeah. And so I feel like the Michael Jackson thing is nuanced because I think there's colorism going on in the family, but I don't think the sole reason why Michael Jackson did what he did was because of colorism. Hmm. I think a lot of it was internalized and a lot of it was transactional and strategic because he wanted to have kids, but nobody's just going to give up their kids like that. So, hmm, who can I build a relationship with and manipulate to the point where My she... My nurse. Right. <laughs> so, yeah, everything yeah. he did was manipulative. It, Michael Jackson is a fascinating person. Yeah. He, he's so fascinating to me. This is why he's my favorite artist. Just, he's so fascinating. And everything was strategic and transactional. It was, wow. So, the rest of the Jacksons... You know, the, like there's Michael and then there's everybody else. Let's keep that real. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, but yeah, it's just marrying quote unquote up, whether that's, you know, somebody who's not African. That's also a transactional thing, the way people talk about it. I really don't think that Michael Jackson was fully looking at somebody's race or ethnicity. I don't. I think he looked at it as a chess move. Right. So he was like, I'm marrying this white lady because she's white. I'm marrying this white lady because she's Elvis's daughter. Mm-hmm. That's going to help me get in this particular place. The initial wave of accusations happened. And so he married her. So yeah, it was. Right. It was, and then that kiss on the, was it MTV, MTV or whatever? Barely, it's the, right. the dude, he's so fascinating. <laughs> to me, that wasn't, the kiss wasn't because, oh, people think he's gay or whatever. He kissed Amon and remember the time. Right. So it's just so weird because he's just like, no, I'm going to prove to everybody I'm black. So he had some disnified version of Egypt. <laughs> wow. Good way to say it. And Disney then, you version. know, he had one of the most beautiful women. Right. It's just like, I'm going to have this like deep chocolate woman right. who's like the epitome of beauty. And then Eddie Murphy. Uh-huh. Magic Johnson. And Magic. So it's just like John Singleton. The, the, right. The, yeah. Like, so. Yeah. It's fascinating. So then he got uh, all the people who he lost with bad. They came back. Remember the time. So again, it's strategic again. Steve, like, I'm gonna show y'all I'm black. And he had, but it was Disney. So he's still like, I'm Disney Peter Pan or whatever. But I'm gonna show. T- I'm gonna show y'all I'm black. And I'm getting the. I'm not getting Spike Lee, but I'm gonna get John Singleton, right. direct the Boys in the Hood, man. Uh huh. Yeah. So I'm gonna get somebody who who y'all know. It's going to be fantastical. And yeah, everything he did was strategic. It's fascinating. The only time he's ever had, I wouldn't even say this is a love interest, but a European love interest in the video was like the dangerous promo video. I don't know if you remember that. Like he he had the uh, the fencing uh, suit on, and then there was this like European woman dancing around in the oh, yeah. sand or whatever. Right. That's the oh, only yeah. time. Every yeah. other video with somebody's that's why that's why I'm like I don't think it's him. 
idealizing white women. I think he just used it as a strategic move. He has an idealized version of himself and women are like down here. Like, I don't think he idealizes anybody. Right. Except kid with just, not even sexually, but just right. like he yeah. has this idealized version of what a child should be. Mm-hmm. That's a problem. People focus on the sexual thing, but we got to look beyond that because it's, it's all a problem. <laughs> <laughs> right. People, he's asexual. I don't think he was asexual. I think he was massively misogynist. If you look at the stuff beyond like the videos, mm-hmm. like all the tapes, yeah. Yeah. He had a problem with women. He clearly like, had a he, women. he yeah. definitely wanted to have some kind of control. He wanted an independent woman, but he also wanted to control that. It's just like, wait a minute now. I mean, you, you just hear him talk in interviews. This is not coming. I right. studied this dude. I'm thinking I'm, of the Michael I'm going Jackson by what tapes he's saying, huh? with the, uh, the Michael Jackson tapes. With the, the Shmooly Shmo- dude? The Shmo- yeah, yeah, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, he he's was... saying all this stuff in the <laughs> interviews. All right. So it's not, this is not just coming from me. It's coming from him. So yeah. it's like, yeah, I want women on me all day, but I, I want to have also some control. And I'm like, nah, dude, <laughs> just, nah. So um, it's funny because he really does have particular issues with women in terms of control so this leads to you know beyond the jacksons where you have these artists so we could talk about print would you say prince was colorist yeah i guess so you i would say i mean that that's a conversation that i think a lot of prince fans they try to avoid but if you were to look at his career and the women he chose to be in his band and in his music videos and just the women he interacted with Mm -hmm. it's a particular shade and it's not a dark skin shade. That only came a little... I mean, people talk about Nona Gay. Or Rosie Gaines. Uh, Rosie Gaines. But Nona Gay's probably the... Miss Boyer. Who, who Bonnie Boyer. Bonnie Boyer. Uh, later in his career, he started, you know... Tamar. Tamar. Liv Warfield. Mm-hmm. They're definitely darker skinned women that he had in his career. But if you really look at the bulk of it, I feel like the later stuff came as sort of like him realizing, oh, I have to start sprinkling in more dark-skinned women. Because <laughs> if you go from his Warner Brothers career, even to like the 90s, to like the mid-90s, I mean, I consider in my day was not, you know, a dark-skinned woman. I feel like he mainly focused on lighter or white women completely. So would you say that's strategic or actual colorism? I think a lot of it was strategic, but I think some of it, yeah, because then I think of his book where he talks. I mean, I I don't know if it was full on colorism, but it's definitely a lot of colorism. I I think a lot of it was strategic too, though, because he wanted to be that sly in the family stone type of artist to be appealing mm-hmm. to having you know all these different folks. But he was definitely trying to win the hearts of everybody, but he clearly aligned more with mixed or lighter skinned woman. So we're going to talk about the definition of colorism. So how would you define colorism? I would say colorism is having a preference and a embedded idea that those who are light or white or aligned to whiteness are more attractive and more appealing to darker skinned peoples. Mm -hmm. So it's like you see anyone who is darker skinned as not as attractive like the colorism is like, oh, you know, someone who's lighter skin, red bone, you know, mm-hmm. someone who doesn't have the features of someone who's 
not on that spectrum. So you're talking about featureism or colorism? Well, I was going to mention featureism because I think a lot of it, I think those those two things blur sometimes together. Yeah. But in particular, colorism is more so your... Yeah, I do, I do think they sort of blur because like mm-hmm. featureism goes into like how your nose is shaped, how your eyes mm-hmm. are, and all of that. So, And it's mostly aligned to whiteness. So whatever your proximity to whiteness is, it's going to be more preferred. Yes. According to the dictionary... Yes, it's along the lines of what you're saying. It says prejudice or discrimination, especially within a racial or ethnic group, favoring people with lighter skin over those with darker skin. So clearly there's a system of white supremacy at play, which uh, supports this. And so there's the merging of class in here as well, because it's taken that the lighter you are, the more proximity you have to wealth Mm -hmm. or some aspect of privilege. Colorism in a lot of ways was people would look at that as a means of survival, particularly prior to Jim Crow and during Jim Crow. So it's like if you marry lighter, you can get out of your financial situation or political situation. So a lot of people who were African did opt to pass as white so they wouldn't have to be affected by discrimination laws. In this day and age, colorism takes on in even more distinct flavor where we get into misogynoir. So African women are seen as more masculine, uh, seen as less demure, louder, you know, less feminine. Yeah, less feminine. And with women who are not European, but also not African, they're seen as more feminine. Uh, They're seen as someone that's not going to talk back as mm. you know as someone who's going to cater to a man's whim and be more quote-unquote submissive, submissive. <laughs> yeah, right. so just a lot of these perceptions and it's interesting to see these perceptions come to light because i for one have known plenty of non-african non-european women who definitely are not demure or submissive so right. this idea that, you know, this is just who they are. So I'm moving to the Dominican Republic or whatever, and not understanding the roots of colonialism in the Dominican Republic or Brazil or anywhere else. It's, it's just really fascinating that people perceive a particular type of woman from a particular country. Those passport bros, right? Like, oh, okay. So let's talk go- about passport bros. Yeah. What's your idea on passport bros? Insane. I mean, birth out of the Andrew Tates and the Kevin Samuel think tape. Can you describe who those folks are? So Andrew Tate is one of those men who had a platform that encouraged men to basically seek women, but to have women under you. He kind of followed with the Kevin Samuels of a high value. Like you have to be a high value man. The more money you have, the more wealth you have, the more likely you'll have success with dating and you'll have women to be going after you so with the passport bros they're like go to another country you have you know because our money out here in america is worth more quote unquote but a lot of these women of course they're poor and they see someone with money so a lot of these dudes go to these other countries and a lot of it is pedophilia too because they're underage Mm -hmm. a lot of these girls and women and you go with money and you say hey you be you know you marry them and then they're easier to deal with because they don't have as much stress as a woman out here would have because they 
they need your money. They need to, you know, you, you help them survive, so to speak. So a lot of dudes are going to these other places, seeking out women just to quote unquote bag them to say, oh, this woman to do what I want her to do because she's with me. I have money. Therefore, she's more subservient. Um, and that's just been a it's been a thing where I've seen people go to these places just for that reason. Like they are literally cat call woman on the street compliment her like hey let me take you out on a date and you can just see the clear it's predatory because you can sense that it's clearly just for one reason they're not valuing this woman's autonomy or anything it's just like i have money marry me and you'll be happy because we can survive this capitalist system because i have more money and you can just do you know you wash the clothes take care of the household and provide me a service of sex do you think they're really even thinking about surviving a capitalist system <laughs> no they, no no i think they're thinking they'll be successful like they'll be like the the ideal version of success they'll have money they'll have access so they'll give them like that proximity to success but they're not they're, they're likely not thinking of first of all the, the rate of exchange is very different <laughs> if you uh go to some countries that you're idealizing these women versus the U.S. It's like when people talk about the immigrants are taking our jobs or people talk about, uh, was it John Mackey, the dude from Whole Paycheck, Whole Foods, or the ex-CEO of Home Despot, Home Depot. Mm -hmm. So these people are going around saying, well, Americans are lazy. It's because of socialism. People just don't want to work anymore. It's like, well, if uh, people got paid an actual living proper wage, people would actually be more okay. Or if their labor wasn't exploited, or if they had ownership over the means of production, maybe people would be a little bit more okay. But you're not being paid your worth. So you think people are going to be happy? So of course, the immigration thing, people who are coming to the U.S. with the effects of imperialism and colonialism that are happening around the world where resources are being stolen, people are forced to flee based on the political conditions. Right. <laughs> so, you know, they're going to go somewhere where they feel like they might feel safe on some level based on particular laws. There are laws that protect people who flee countries here. But there's a lot of people who are like immigrants. They don't right. understand that there are actually protections, supposedly, quote unquote, um, that are written. It doesn't mean uh, that's always applied, but it's actually written right. into law, these protections. At the same time, there are people who have fled here based on these protections that are not being paid a living wage. Mm -hmm. And that you're saying people are lazy. It's like, okay, right. you go out right. and you uh, work in a sweatshop for $2 an hour. We'll, we'll see how you like that. It's yeah. just people like John Mackey and all of these other ex-CEOs and executives, of course, they're the ones that are in support of exploiting labor, and they're the ones who are building capital off the backs of this labor. So, of course, they're saying people don't want to work and people are lazy. Mm -hmm. So, to me, the passport bros and the colorist and people who talk about black American women. These are the same people who don't understand these dynamics. So you go to these countries and you're basically doing sex tourism and exploitation. Yeah. And you think, oh, 
oh, these women, they're just so happy to be at my feet and cook and clean. They're surviving. They see you as somebody who is going to help them get out of their situation. It is transactional. Do you think that every single person you are doing this to enjoys what is happening? So much of what is happening with these transactional exchanges is sexual assault and rape. But these dudes think that's perfectly okay for some reason because black women are just so loud and and they're so masculine and they don't want to submit. And even a lot of people use the word submit and a lot of people use the Bible at the same time in the same sentence. But doesn't it also say, you're a preacher's kid, doesn't it also say that the man... Uh, in order for a woman to submit, the man must also submit to God. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. <laughs> so submission doesn't mean that uh, y- you are to just let somebody beat on you whenever and you just do whatever. That's not what submission mm-hmm. means. Submission is actually, if you want to really look at it, it is a mutual relationship. Right. It has nothing to do with somebody like being higher or lower. But these dudes either don't read or... And misinterpret what they're reading. So if if you're really getting into the religious aspect of it, uh, you are submitting to God. So that means you are lower than God in from that perspective. Doesn't mean the the woman or the wife is lower than you. And if you're not submitting to God, then she doesn't have to build that relationship with you. And that's really my interpretation of this this biblical scripture. Everyone's submitting to God and. You being a a man that saying you're alpha, the dude who actually did the study on wolves, these were wolves in captivity. Talking about the alpha and the beta and all that. Given that we are under capitalism and it is a form of captivity, if you ask me, you're going to build these transactional relationships and then you're going to create this concept of alpha and beta and theta or whatever. I don't know. But... If you are in a particular situation where you are not fully liberated, yeah, it's going to be these hierarchical relationships that are emphasized, and that's exactly what that is. In terms of music that celebrates colorism and massage noir, what are some examples of that? The baby, who was a rapper, he I remember it was so funny is that he actually had a child with someone Prince worked with right before he passed away, Danny Lee. And mm. Danny Lee. Oh, wait, she's the one. The Breakfast Can Wait, right? Yeah. She played yep, Prince. Yep, yep, okay. Yep. Yeah. And so she released a song after she started dating the baby called Yellowbone. That's what he likes. That's what he likes. That's pretty much the chorus. She's like, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's an awful song. Right. But <laughs> that type of idea that, yeah, the Yellowbone, the lighter. I mean, he's has many songs like that. Drake has many songs like this. Oh, Lil wow. Baby. I mean, most of the rappers now. Have, I mean, Kanye West, mm. of course. One of his famous lyrics, he says, with some light-skinned girls and some Kelly Rowlands. Uh, oh, wow. Yeah, I think the song, Power. So, like, that. there's a lot of... <laughs> and the song called Power? Yeah. With some light-skinned girls and some Kelly Rowlands. And then he says, in this white man's world, we the ones chosen. That- Wait, what does that mean? <laughs> Because he did, what was the uh, interview with Tucker Carlson? I think it was Tucker Carlson or the other guy that's on CNN. It's Tucker Carlson or the other guy, the the dude from the UK. So Pierce Morgan? Yeah, oh, it's yeah, one of yeah. them. And he talked about how his objective is to achieve 
white manhood, something like that, where, yeah, he wants to be on the level of a white man because they have the most power. So, yeah, he's pretty consistent, I guess. Yeah, the lyrics definitely reflect that. Yeah, this perception that dark-skinned women are more violent, less submissive, and that a light-skinned or a white woman are just more likely to to just be quiet and to let the man take over because that's his role. Like, it's really embedded in a lot of uh, music. And I think of the baby, I think of Drake, I think of a lot of these rappers and singers, because they're, you know, you look at someone like, I don't want, I'm hesitant to say his name because I can't remember the song, but I believe Usher even has a song referring to this too. Um, <laughs> it's very popular. And a lot mm-hmm. of folks really think that that's, you know, and, and these are songs that are quote unquote hits. People listen to these. Chris Brown, especially, has songs referring to dark skinned women. And the way he tried to compensate that is using Nomani, no I believe her name is. He put her in a video. She's a notable dark skinned woman. But he did that, I think, because a conversation on Twitter was heavy about how he usually excluded dark skinned women. So he's like, okay, my next video, I'll have Nomani in it. And so people are like, oh, see, he, he liked dark skinned women. He got this woman in the video. It's like, that is not his standard. That is something he did to get out of the conversation. So even when they use dark skinned women just to compensate, like, oh, I'm not that bad, but it doesn't align to all of the other songs that they do. There's even uh, one of my favorite hip hop albums of all time, Long Live the Kane, Big Daddy Kane. They have the line, was it uh, fine young ladies or pretty young ladies of the light skin breed? You got, you got, you got what I need. So, Whoa. yeah, so I mean, it's been around for a minute. Colorism's been a thing for many decades. <laughs> and that's, I love that album. I mean, there's a couple of problematic things on that album. But yes, to me, one of the greatest hip hop albums of all time. Yeah, there was a, uh, the other thing, wasn't Akon just, he did an interview in the Breakfast Club oh, or right. something. Yeah. And he was talking about building a relationship with women in Africa where they knew how to be women. They knew their roles and hmm. just this whole thing. And again, knowing women from the continent of Africa, I have no idea what he's talking about because there are many women in the continent of Africa on the front lines right now. Right. African women have always worked. African women have always been on the front lines of justice. And here are these men sitting and saying, yeah, you know, women just don't know how to cook anymore. Like, what does that even mean? That is an insult to Fannie Lou Hamer. That is an insult to Miriam McKeba. It's an insult to so many women who stood and fought this system so you could sit there on the mic and say that. Right. How mm-hmm. dare you? And then it's just, and he had, was it Akon City or whatever? Oh. So again, he has this idea of what Africa should look like, but that's not the reality. Africa is still dealing with the ravages of colonialism and imperialism. And here we have Obama in 2009 in Ghana saying, don't blame, don't blame colonialism, colonialism for the problems with Africa. And so here we have Akon being like, yeah, you know, patriarchy. <laughs> I don't even think he used the word patriarchy, but that's essentially what he's saying is that patriarchy has its benefits. It benefits men. It's a natural thing that it's like, people always use the example of uh, the wolf pack, like you mentioned earlier, like the lion. But you study the lions, the the lion mate, the man, he doesn't do the work. The the I mean, they all have their roles. Is actually doing the the killing. They have their roles. I mean, the male seahorses are the one who give birth. Right. (laughs) 
true. <laughs> so everyone has their roles in particular non-human societies. Humans, based on particular situations, have to adapt in accordance to whatever. So people love to quote the Moynihan Report. People love to quote all of these documents and these documents are misinterpreted or people take on whatever uh, sections of these documents. They love to defend their confirmation bias. Hmm. People talk about, well, you know, women became less feminine because they had to go out and work and don't talk about the school, the prison pipeline. You don't talk about the prison industrial complex as a whole. You don't talk about police terrorism when it comes to a lot of that. If we are dealing with a nuclear family and you're talking about a man, woman, 2.5 kids, why are you not talking about police terrorism where women are left to raise kids on their own because the husbands were murdered by the state or they got locked up for non-violent offenses or whatever? We're not addressing that, but it's like, well, um, you know, women are less masculine because they have to go out and work. But what does that mean? What material conditions exist for your fantasy to be over of women uh, being in the house and cooking for you all day and barefooted right. pregnant. There are particular material conditions that exist for your fantasy to not work. Right. But you're not addressing that. You're just going, oh, feminism just ruined everything. Like, what does that even mean? <laughs> it doesn't mean anything. That you, you're addressing this thing when you're not talking about the system at large, which oppresses not only women, but you. Right. You're not benefiting from it. And so I want to get to the, not only that, because we have the women in the videos, you know, colorism there, but it's also the way people are treated. So what was, uh, what was that dude? What was the, the tip drill? What's his name when he had the credit card? Oh, what's, what's that dude's name? Hmm. I forget. But this is, this is what women are looked at. It's just transactional. You are a means to get me off. You are not a whole person. You are a body part that I can put a credit card up. Hmm. You are a person I just ejaculate into and then we go to sleep and you get out my house. This is what women are, are seen as in these songs. Yeah. So what are some example? You know, we're talking about colorism, but that's commingled with misogyny and misogynoir. So what are some examples you could think of? Because And getting into... Uh, rape and assault culture because I think those things mix in so the one so two songs that I thought of immediately when thinking about this Rick Ross she didn't even know it that's what I Ooh, think of that's a good one I am that's the yeah but a song that people just sing and don't think about how that's about sexual assault is next too close too close oh I'm not familiar because so that's the song when they up in the club and he just grinds up on her and the chorus is like, I feel a little poke on me or whatever. Oh, whoa. Remember the dude like remade it was like, why the fuck you lying? Yeah. But, so that that oh, came okay. from that song. So the song oh. is about how the dude's in the club and he sees this woman gets an erection and he like dances on this woman. And she's like, I feel a little poke. That's a freaking That's a, sexual yeah. song. I don't care. But everyone's singing it. Wow. So songs like that, because it's just written in this way that's so clever people don't understand this dude's grinding on her without her consent and so maybe maybe she felt okay but the way it's written and how i'm hearing it blurred lines also oh yeah that's a good one that's a good one and I, yeah that's a good one there's also and this is more so a song that is not 
honoring consent. That's really been a frequent conversation starter. Um, but baby is cold outside. <laughs> yeah, didn't uh, uh, John Legend remake that with somebody and they changed yeah, the lyrics? Right. Yeah, I believe so. Oh, that right. guy, John Legend. <laughs> That's a whole other episode. <laughs> Woo, my goodness. Another famous song that people love is Snoop Doggy Dog and Dr. Dre. It ain't no fun if the homies can't handle it. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, I, mm, yeah. So, that's the first song I thought of. And I was like, yeah, it ain't no fun. To me, that's a, that's a, that's a rape song. But people be singing it. I remember one day I was uh, at this bar. And it, it, was, it was, I think it was a queer woman. Either a, a, a queer non-binary person. I think it was a queer woman DJ. And... She was playing that song. I was like, why are you playing that? Right. She's like, what? I was like, listen to the lyrics. She was like, oh, turn it. Like, she wasn't even listening to the lyrics. She was like, yeah. like oh, this song's about rape. And she's like, oh. <laughs> like, uh, uh, why, why you put a song you don't even know what it's about? Right. And that's the thing. We talked about the t-shirt thing. I'm a lyrics person. Me too. So if... All about what if saying. there's a song that's like I'm trying to kill you Negro I don't care if the beat's great if I'm hearing that I it ain't no fun I don't give a fuck about hoe I'm not putting that on I'm not, I don't want that in my spirit but everybody's just singing it I don't I don't, I don't care about no bitch and no hoe like that like that's the song yeah no it just just suck it and yeah it's just like there is a song Akinyele put in your mouth though where it's like both sides. So both people are mutually enjoying oral sex. Okay. See, songs like that. My sister used to play that song all the time. Oh, but when I first, I was like, oh my God. And then you're like, oh, okay. Oh, it's both people. Okay. Yeah. No. But, but songs don't always do that. No. It's on the woman to perform. It's mm -hmm. on the woman to pleasure the dude. Right. But there's a lot of dudes like, I ain't doing it. Khaled, DJ Khaled did that too. Wait, he's just like, oh, yeah, he's like I'm not do doing that. that. I don't do yeah. that. I don't do I'm that. That's not, that's not manly to do that. So yeah. So there's a lot of ideas of this idealization of white femininity that, you know, the proximity to it, whether you're the quote video girl or the spouse or whatever, mm. you know, you just have to be in close proximity to that. Uh, you're not the ideal but you are close to that ideal. We're going to represent you and we're going to do it at the expense of African women, dark-skinned African women. So here's the other thing too that's part of that misogynoir. I don't think people understand it as misogynoir because it's not only infantilizing African women, but it's ignoring the contributions, the, the nuances of African women. So you hear a ton of men go, Black women are just queens and they're gods and they gave birth to the earth and they gave birth to me. It's totally dehumanizing African woman because you don't see her as someone of value to be a partner. Right. You just see her as a, as mother, a mother, as someone who's a vessel. Mm, right. You just see her as someone who just does work. Labor, right. Instead of being a partner or... Right. She doesn't have the capacity to do that because she's too busy giving birth to the world. Mm. People don't understand how dehumanizing that is. Yeah. Putting this image of an African woman as a queen. So <laughs> if she makes any mistakes, it's like, oh, I, 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 I don't know. It's just, just too much for me. Right. So, you, so 
you create a particular image so you compartmentalize that. I can't date black women because they're just queens. They're just too good. It's just dehumanizing. Yeah. The other thing is really funny to me. People idealize these white women out here and then complain that white women is calling the police on them. I'm like, which one is it? <laughs> it's like, hold, hold, how are you going to be like barbecue Becky or whatever? But then you go, oh, white women. Ugh. I don't understand this. Can you explain this? <laughs> I, I don't. That's a big contradiction. You praise white women for how submissive they are. But then when they say the N word, they don't want the kids to know about African culture or anything, then you have a problem with it. Mm-hmm. So yeah. it, it's it's missing in translation. It's like they, it's the idealism. The idea is not what they're what you're really looking at. You're looking at you have this configuration based off of stereotypical creations through media or whatever, and then you realize that, oh, they actually have a particular idea that it's not what I thought, not what I'm assuming them to be, and so it, it turns over on their heads. But, but wait, what does that mean? Because we've seen plenty of examples over time of your ideal calling the police on you. So, think, I mean, it's just like, what are you idealizing? They didn't think it could happen to me. I didn't think this could. Like, oh, I'm beyond that. I don't see racism. You know, I'm. Right. It's like Kanye West. It's like I'm working to be at the level of white men. So it's <laughs> yeah. like there's a, a historical analysis that is missing in these people's statements. Again, there is nothing wrong at all with being attracted and marrying and getting together with someone with different ethnicity and race. We're not talking about that. We're talking about the extreme idealization of somebody who historically and systemically has oppressed you. We're talking about systems here. <laughs> this is yeah. not, it, it's like what uh, Eldridge Cleaver was talking about. Mm. So he he was saying that he raped white women to get at, to get back at what the white man did. Like, don't do that. First of all, rape is rape, regardless of who you're doing it to. Yeah. So uh, he also raped African women. So <laughs> yeah, that perspective is also toxic. So getting back and being reactionary at someone just because of what the system did to you. No, no one deserves that. I don't care who you are. No. Let's address the system. And don't idealize this particular person based on your class alliances. <laughs> because we see what happens. What did Kanye West do? Oh, oh, these these Kardashians are trying to um, kill me. They're trying get to after my what my black daughters. So which one is it, Kanye? You can't talk about your your desire to be within the proximity of white men and then go. These white women are trying to steal my black daughters from me. It doesn't work that way. This is why having an analysis is important. Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. And so assuring that that person you are with also understands that analysis and shares that with you. That is a thing to exist. So <laughs> this is not this idea that the white people and the black, like that doesn't, that's not going to fly here. Having an analysis, a, a historical analysis to inform what's happening today is crucial. We see that these musicians, these rappers, whoever, clearly do not share that. I think a lot of it, it's a little more than colorism. I think just calling it colorism is a little too simplistic because you have the nuances of also class alliances. 
I don't think that these dudes like white women either. I don't think they like women. I don't think I was about to say I don't think they like women. Because they see them as a vessel. They see them as a means to be within the proximity of whiteness. This is the ultimate problem that whiteness is an ideal. <laughs> this is the heart of what we need to get to. A lot of these dudes the way they talk about women, it's clear they don't love them. They are looking to be within the proximity of a particular type of whiteness, I'll right. say. It's not even just it's it's white, not, yeah, it's a particular type of whiteness. Whiteness is definitely specific to a certain type of action, behavior. Yeah, it's a class alliance. Yeah. It's a, so they're looking to have a particular class alliance, and that is the anti-people's class they look at a particular type of whiteness to be a part of that alliance. Right. Yeah, I think even these European women who are dating these men, man, it's like, be careful. <laughs> be, be careful, man, because I don't think they're into you either. No. Because <laughs> once you do something to slip up that's uh, out of the realm of their idea of patriarchy or submission or whatever, they, they're going to come for you too. So. Absolutely. We've seen that. There's been a whole trend on TikTok where white women are talking about a lot of times when they're with these black men, it's just to have a baby and to have a to have pretty baby, to have a pretty baby. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Makes baby, you know, if you are the not the current generation of Jackson Gray kids, but the ones before that, you are not passing. No. So you better have that conversation with your kids. For real. <laughs> <laughs> it's like so you can have some kids with some three C hair or whatever, but if they are not passing, mm. they're going to be perceived in the world as black, and they are going to have those experiences yeah. under those perceptions. So you can have all the quote unquote pretty children you want, but there is a particular reality that people experience, and if you don't have that discussion with your kids. <laughs> then good luck. And then you're going to be like, oh, oh, racism is bad. And it's just like, have that conversation, have the right. analysis, have that understanding. So I want to ask you, as we are closing out, have you had, uh, in terms of music, were there particular pieces of music that you connected with at what point that were colorist? Are those ideas that you held at what point? And if so, what shifted for you? So I can't say I had music because I didn't listen to, and I still don't know a lot of hip hop and R&B where a lot of that was featured, but I saw- Well, it doesn't have to, it could be any music. Right, any music, but I never really listened to music that specific, that was really, that really dealt with colorism per se. I can't, I'm really thinking of movies too, because I've seen like mm-hmm. how movies portray it. And I was definitely influenced by a lot of the movies that, you know, I grew up on that would always align. Like you think of a movie, like all of the Friday series. Friday, Friday, at next you know Friday, what? Friday after next. And pull my car because I, I have seen all of Friday in pieces. I have totally never right. seen never... the whole movie as a whole. I've seen the movie, but all clips. Wow. So you can take my card. But I have seen the movie, but <laughs> no. not. There's a lot of it. movies that yeah. I haven't seen either. But I know with movies, it's like just showing someone who's not a dark skinned woman, seeing someone who's mixed or non black completely, and making the dark-skinned woman the angry one the one that's always antagonistic and i know as a child i never had i've always been close to black women i always had my bestest friends always been dark-skinned black women and i remember a friend of mine andrea called me out on it because i was talking about drumline 
Did you see Drumline with no. Nick Cannon? Okay, so that's another movie. Oh, that, Nick Cannon. Okay. Yeah, yeah. but mm. that movie, <laughs> I believe it was a uh, Christine Milian, who was his love interest, and I know at the time everyone's cool like, oh, you know, everyone's just talking about how fine she was, and hmm. everybody else in that film, the dark skinned women were like, they were the, uh, like even a, a movie like Bring It On. Have you seen Bring It On? I haven't seen that. (laughs) (laughs) But these movies where dark-skinned women were the bullies, the ones that were always, you know, angry and stuff. And anytime we talked about the light-skinned woman, she was pretty, she was feminine. She was was soft. And I remember Andrea called me out. She was one of the first people to actually call me out on that. Like, you don't notice how always the dark-skinned women are mean and the Mm light-skinned women are like always just pretty and dolled up. Like, that Mm -hmm. seems like that's a problem. Even having a conversation with my father about this, because when he would talk about colorism, he told me as a young age, as a young boy, he was attracted to, he was color struck. Mm-hmm. And until he met his, you know, my mom and he had conversations with his pastor, who's sort of like his father and realizing the depth of it, he realized he had to really deprogram himself from that mentality. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, my everyday life experience and even watching films and even now when I listen to music and I hear those undertones and overtones, I find it because, yeah, I'm listening to the lyrics and also what are you presenting? Because that presentation does have a subconscious influence of how you perceive those around you. Even if you were to do a test and you were to think of like an angry, if you just say an angry woman, what's the first image that comes to your mind? Are you thinking of someone to be dark? Are you Mm -hmm. thinking of like what are the subconscious depictions that are featured and how are you challenging that? Because every day it's I mean, we're still seeing it now. You're talking about albums that were out in the 90s. I mean, I think it's still, to this day, folks have a perception of what is not attractive and what is attractive. So you really got to ask yourself, even the things you're attracted, why am I attracted to that? Mm -hmm. Like, what is that that's making me, you know, and why am I turned off by that? Doing that constant work where you're having to perceive what your palate is about, because a lot of that is influenced by what you're looking at and what you're listening to. Yeah. So would you say on some level you were influenced by that? Yes, I would definitely was. I would say I was influenced by it. I thought at one time, like me and my brother would talk about like when we every time we talked about what was attractive, it was always a lighter skinned hmm. woman. And when I realized, you know, I'm attracted to dark skin, when I talk about that, they're like, yeah, she fine, but she not like she mm-hmm. she pretty. They do the thing like, oh, no, dark skin girls can't be fine. They just cute or pretty. <laughs> It's like, no, they fine. Mm-hmm. Like, so like the regulation. So I definitely had the thing where I was realizing I was regulating beauty, like fine, like woo, woo, attractive to like the lighter skin. And then someone who's dark skin is like, oh, she cute. Mm-hmm. So it was like a minimized version of, you know, someone who was seen as really attractive. So, yeah, I definitely, especially in, in middle school, that's when I really had to confront that. So what point changed for you? Me, ex- I was like, who Who are you to tell me that this person isn't attractive? They're attractive. I, this is what I perceive as attractive. Why are you telling me that they're not? So just realize, identifying what I, I saw as real and not being influenced or told that you're, you're not looking at this lighter skinned person. Because mm-hmm. I realized like y- the people who are telling you that they have a perception of what they, because then it's like, oh, I look at myself. I'm a dark skinned man. Mm-hmm. Why should I exhibit feelings that dark skinned people are not attractive? That's downing who I am and who my mom is, my mm-hmm. grandmother. So it was looking at the beauty that was around me and realizing that's just as real and just as something that I that I should say. Mm, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Another movie that comes to mind that had colorism, it's a movie we both love, 
coming to coming America. To America. Yeah. Right. And so while it was forward thinking was in 1987 that it did have a anti-patriarchal message in some ways, but it was mad colorist. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Just like I was telling you, uh, her, her sister... Patrice, I mean, Patrice, yeah, she was that starved. Was, she was the one I found the she's most attractive. Beautiful. She's beautiful. That's what I'm saying. I was like, that's who I want. And she, if you see pictures of her, she's beautiful. Oh, my goodness. I said, like, Shirley Ralph. That's, oh, oh, oh. I love, I love you. She is. <laughs> right. Woo, she's the sexiest woman alive. I don't, yeah. Shirley Ralph. Go Ooh. go look at Shirley Ralph. Yeah. Woo. <laughs> that's, yeah. yeah. And I think this is how whiteness and people of a lighter hue are perceived. Like in my mind, I feel like in this funny way, while women of a darker hue are masculinized, lighter people are infantilized. So I, oh. I looked at the exact opposite where like lighter women were like cute. So it was like, oh, oh. cute and like dainty and, oh, and like yeah, yeah. darker skinned women were like beautiful. Right. Just like like mature and mm -hmm. just absolutely just gorgeous. Right. Holly Berry's just cute. She's cute. Yeah, Holly Berry's cute. <laughs> but Shirley Ralph is like sexy. Yeah. Cause light skinned women are infantilized in a way. But I think I think women are infantilized as a whole. Yeah. But how white women and lighter skinned women are idealized. Femininity is infantilized. So sure. I, I, I don't understand why people go, oh, that's so great that um, he just sees my feminine. Like, he's looking at you right. as someone to control. Like, he's not looking as, as, as femininity to value. He's looking at femininity as a means to control. These people don't like women. They like women as a means to get off. They don't like women as full, as full sentient beings. Sentient. The way they talk about women, they don't like them as full sentient beings, as humans. I had a, a friend in junior high school. She was like one of my best friends in junior high school. She was on the darker side and people made fun of her all the time and it made me sad. And then I also was friends with this Haitian kid, you know, and I'm just a shy kid and didn't really speak up, but it just made me really sad. But yeah, we have these perceptions. I just think women are infantilized as a whole under the system of patriarchy and how music perceives women like you're a means to get off right. or you're a means to control on some level whether it's mentally whether it's physically and so now we have with the Marilyn Mansons consistently being sued a lot of these people are not good in this industry taking Tory advantage Lanes. of young girls and, and right. women and sometimes boys we have to be really, really careful. And then there's songs like Dub the Vote Do Me, Backstage Under Eight, right. you know, that kind of stuff that we just, oh. people were singing. People were singing really loud to these songs. So it's just important that we pay attention and we have these conversations with these kids about colorism and why that's dangerous. Why we need to look at people's humanity as opposed to their hue and understand that everyone, regardless of what gender you connect with and identify as, you have value. And I think that's really where we need to get to. If someone's like, I met someone who is of a different ethnicity or race and I, you know, I'm into them. Support that as long as they respect that person's humanity. Respect that and encourage them and speak to them about consent. And if these kids are listening to music, 
like you'll know it or whatever it's called have a conversation with these kids just don't throw it away and be like oh don't listen to that because the kids are not with you for 24 7 they're gonna be out in the world so be prepared to have these conversations hey let's discuss what that song is about do you know what patriarchy is Mm -hmm. do you know what sexism is do you know what misogyny is do you know what misogynoir is be prepared to have these conversations so when they go out into the world as an adult they can see the humanity of people who are their friends, who are their partners, who are their spouses, who are their children. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so do you have any final words? We have to fight patriarchy. And I think also we all need to do a better job, especially men, at reading and understanding the biology of women and men. <laughs> And non men, <laughs> marginalized. Like, we just got to figure out, get some more research in mm-hmm. so that we know how to navigate this world and not be so stuck on surface level terms vagina, mm-hmm. penis. It's d- definitely more than that. So, yeah. <laughs> Fight patriarchy. Read more about your bodies. Learn more about your bodies. Mm-hmm. And don't be afraid to have conversation about Yeah, have our conversations. Bodies. Yeah. You really be like, hey, you know. Because I think when we get together with people, there's a lot of women who are like, man, I haven't had an orgasm with anybody. But there's ways to do it. But people just either look at porn or this music or whatever. And it's just like, Teddy Pendergrass, let's take a shower together. But it just doesn't really talk about the other stuff, the awkwardness of sex. It doesn't talk about it. Absolutely right. It's awkward. We do a whole episode on that. Sex is awkward as hell. Like yeah. that's what it is. No one talks about that. Everyone's just like, take your clothes off. It's like, no, there's so many moving pieces. And... Yeah. Like you knock somebody in the eye, right. maybe, or, <laughs> right. you know, you're like your foot's here. It's yeah. like, yeah. <laughs> and then just, you know, talk about what makes you happy or being okay with like, Hey, is this okay? If I do this, somebody yeah, be like, yes questions or no. throughout the whole experience and during be like, Hey, is this okay? I don't remember towards the end, but this is, a thing really that I think should be addressed. The gray lines when it comes to sex, because so many people have experienced, and a lot of musicians are getting caught up in this now. So it's an age of Aquarius, age of information, right? Where things that people did are now getting brought out to the surface. The first time I ever had sexual intercourse with anybody, I was 21 years old. I was a little older than average. And so I mentally was not ready to have sex with anybody. Like I wasn't thinking about it. It was with a mutual friend or I wasn't like great friends with him, but he was friends with a friend of mine and we were hanging out and came back to my apartment after the show and just started taking my pants off. I didn't know what to say it was deer caught in headlights so I didn't say yes or no so it was that gray area where I didn't particularly consent but I didn't not consent Mm -hmm. if I were to say no and this is for a lot of people you say no there could be repercussions for that what do you say some people in the conversation had in this day and age some people would say that is assault yeah I still don't know how to feel about like I don't hate the guy but I didn't consent to it either because I didn't have a connection with this person at all. I still don't know 
where that fits in. Some people would say assault. Some people would go, well, you didn't say no. Yeah. So you're going to talk about blurred lines. It's that thing where you're in this situation where you don't know what to do. And so when people talk about enthusiastic consent, that needs to definitely mm-hmm. be had between anyone who is in this situation. If somebody clearly doesn't say yes, don't do anything. Yeah. If the, if you are not reading body language as exactly. enthusiastic consent, verbal communication. ask first. Yes. Be like, hey, is it okay? Because he came over my plate. We were just hanging out. I just thought we were going to hang out and listen to music. I didn't know I was... He came over to want to have sex with me. Right. But I wasn't even discussed. We see this in movies. We see this in music videos where... Oh, people just give each other the eye and then they have sex. Mm. Movies, it's like, oh, you just look at me. Then you just kiss me. Not everybody wants that. It's okay to be like, hey, is it okay if I kiss you? Hey, is it okay if I hug you? Hey, is it okay if I do this? We need to make that more part of our lexicon. But that's going to ruin everything. So? Yeah, so if you think it's going to ruin, then you're not the person for me. Because some people are touch averse. Some people are aromantic and don't like being touched. They just want the sex. Yeah. Like get Everyone's together with right. somebody like that if you just want to have sex. Right. Some people Some don't want to have sex kissed. at all. People, yeah. They just want to be touched. They don't want the intercourse. You have to have that conversation. It's assumed that you hang out with somebody who is not your gender that is just, oh, you're having sex. And like we have to really do away with that kind of conversation. I had a situation where I was with somebody and there was something that happened. I had a situation in a previous relationship where I was coerced into not using a condom. So I was really traumatized from that. This other person I was with, he was there and he, was, um, he wasn't going to do anything, but I automatically thought he was because I got triggered. So he was like on me and he wasn't wearing a condom. So I was like, oh my, uh, he's like, no, I'm not going to. That stuff's really, like, you don't know what somebody has been through. And for you to just assume that's what somebody wants, they may not have told you about their assault. They may not have told you about being coerced into not using protection. They may not have told you about their childhood. I was assaulted at eight years old, almost raped as as an eight-year-old. That's why we need to, and I didn't talk about it until I was in my 30s. So we really need to be clear about where we are with somebody and really have a conversation from the time we are a child about consent. Like if you don't feel like using the word vagina, penis or whatever, I don't know. Hey, there's particular spots on you. If somebody touches you there, you come and talk to me. Right. We need to be having these conversations, not just as children, but as adults. Yeah, throughout our whole lives. Throughout yeah. our whole lives about consent because this music is just is uh-huh. too much. Yeah. And everything's just kind of like sexualized. And so that's what these kids are taking on. And again, they're seeing women as objects. They're not seeing humans as whole beings. So we really need to be having these conversations with each other. That's what I got to say about that. There was the whole thing in the 90s with TLC, even Madonna. Mm -hmm. People was talking about protection and consent. Where is that now? Right. Right. It's like, oh, you ain't even know it. Or you, I saw you in the club or whatever. Yeah. That's what we got again. So we back to that. 
So yeah, we we gotta we gotta do better. We really gotta do better. We gotta do better and see each other as whole people. Stop this. Stop this colorism. Stop this Stop misogyny. Stop this misogynoir. Stop all of it. Stop patriarchy. Yeah. Well, yeah, on that. <laughs> Kittens and rainbows and puppies <laughs> and flowers. And nature. And Saint Anger. <laughs> so, yes. Thank you. This, this uh, yeah. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Until next episode. Until thank you for listening. next time. Have a good day. And remember to practice consent. Yes. Enthusiastic consent. Thank you. Thank you.